We will hear argument this morning in Case 21-376, Holland versus Brackeen and the Consolidated Cases. Mr. McGill. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. According to the federal government, in 2020, there were over 11,000 Native American children in state foster care. The Indian Child Welfare Act deprives deprives Indian children of the best interest of the child test. It replaces that test with a hierarchy of placement preferences that puts non-Indian families at the bottom of the list. As this Court explained in Hollyfield, this effectuates a federal policy of sending Indian children to the Indian community. The problem is is that there are fewer than 2,000 Native American foster homes. That means each year hundreds, if not thousands, of Indian children are placed in non-Indian foster homes, and sometimes there they bond with those families. Yet when those families try to adopt those children, ICWA rears its head for a second time, allowing tribes to play the proverbial ICWA trump card at the 11th hour. This is happening now for a second time to the Brackeens as they try to adopt YRJ, who is now four and a half years old. For a second time, the Brackeens are asked to show good cause to overcome the placement preferences under a new regulatory standard that, in the agency's words, is narrow, limited, and not a best interests test. Not even YRJ's deep attachment to the Brackeens after being part of their family for four years is sufficient. For both that child and her family, this flouts the promise of equal justice under the law. I welcome the Court's questions. Uh, Would you spend a minute on uh, what the good cause standard is? Um, uh, I think, of course, you understand that there's already a placement, there's already adoption in process, but how does that work? Justice Thomas, uh, after the 2016 rule, what the 25 CFR 23.132 you now, there are now five enumerated ways in which good cause can be shown. The government says that, it, that the regulation merely says that it uh, should be one of these five factors. Uh, but you know, a remarkable thing happens when a family court judge in the States picks up a copy of the Code of Federal Regulations. He treats it as binding federal law. And that is how it happens on the ground. It is treated as enumerated things that must be shown. Further, it excludes uh, any consideration of socioeconomic circumstances of the, uh, of the competing families. And finally, it says uh, that what the regulation describes as ordinary bonding and attachment that arises from a placement that's in violation of ICWA's placement preferences shall not be a, a, a sufficient or sole basis for showing good cause. And, of course, the child uh, at, at issue in these proceedings has no stake in whether she or he was placed uh, in supposed violation of ICWA's preferences at the foster care, uh, at the foster care process. Counsel, you haven't challenged the regulation. Uh, yes, we have, Your Honor. We have a challenge to the, But the, not in the cert-granted question. Um, Your Honor, we challenged the — we raised uh, a challenge in our complaint to the — I'm not asking about the complaint. The cert-granted question does not include 
challenges to the regulation. It, it, it challenges the, the statute. We challenge the uh, regulation as an unconstitutional, as an implementation Council of Council answered the question. Is it part of the question presented or not? I believe it is, Your Honor. Did you seek cert on that question? We did not seek cert on the question of the, whether it is a permissible construction of the statute. We sought cert on whether the statute— So if, it, if you don't seek cert on that, there's nothing on that good cause standard. I don't, I don't think so, Your Honor. Um, Counsel, can I turn to something you said, which was it displaces the best interest of the child standard? In most uh, state custody proceedings, the best interest of the child is uh, what guides those decisions. Yet we have the Hague Convention on the Abduction of Children that basically says to the court, you can't make that determination. You have to send the child back, and it gives a session, section of exceptions, etc. Um, and it even says um, standards of proof, etc. Why is this case any different than the Hague Convention? Um, for, I think, a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First, uh, the Hague Convention, as I understand it, would send the child back to their place of their habitual residence. But that's not necessarily in the best interest of the child. There's no best interest standard there. But, uh, what I was, if I might just uh, finish my thought, Your Honor, um, that is, that habitual residence standard is, is essentially duplicated in Section 1911A, which provides for tribe, tribal courts to have exclusive jurisdiction concerning children who are domiciled on uh, on tribal lands. So th- I think that, that that parallels the Hague Convention. The other — Well, how? Uh, Meaning these children are in the U.S. They have a relationship with an Indian tribe over which we have recognized for over two centuries Congress has plenary, plenary authority. If Congress in one enumerated power — can supersede a state standard, why can't it in another? Well, Your Honor— They can say the best interest of the child shouldn't be the top test or only test, either good cause or something else, as it does. Why is that beyond Congress's power? I'm not aware that uh, an equal protection challenge has ever been presented to the Hague Convention. if you if you're referring you, you you think that Congress's foreign affairs powers don't permit it to legislate with respect to the relationships of a foreign country and its competing custody issues? Your Honor, I think the foreign affairs power is subject to the Fifth Amendment. I think the question of whether citizenship is a would be uh, — would rise to the level — a classification based on citizenship would amount to race discrimination, would, you know, essentially be the question of whether citizenship is being used as a proxy for race. Counsel, the government to what extent is the best interests of the child or the same considerations that are taken into account uh, uh, under the best interests of the child incorporated in the good cause uh, showing that could be made under ICWA? Um, I, I would say that they are not, Your Honor. I mean, the, the good cause standard is, is a holistic standard that takes all of the child's circumstances and needs into account. 
what the good cause standard does is sharply limit that under the 2016 rule to enumerated factors. In the 2013, when the adoptive couple case was before this court, the government described the good cause standard as a safety valve. That's footnote two of its brief. It is no longer a safety valve. The Interior Department has promulgated these regulations with the specific purpose of making it limited, narrow, and in its own words, not a best interest test. So it differs very much from what would be the traditional best interest test. So how do you understand this uh, to work? I mean, if you have, for example, um, uh, an Indian couple, uh, non tribal members of the, the tribe of the uh, uh, child, uh, exactly how does the state court adoption authority uh, take into account how, — how do they weigh the interest of the non-family tribe member against — you say you don't take into account the best interests of the child? What are you weighing on the other side? Well, I think you could look to the Texas Court of Appeals decision in the YRJ case as just an example of this. So the question is whether it, whether the, the person challenging the placement preference has shown one of the enumerated factors um, by, it, at that time, clear and convincing evidence. The, that, that standard of proof has since fallen by the wayside. So that's how it, it plays out on the ground. Is one of those five factors demonstrated by preponderance of the evidence? It doesn't, you know, it, it does not, those five factors don't take into account the bonding or attachment of the child, which would be the most obvious and most compelling part of the best interest standard. It only says if there's you know, a showing of extraordinary needs that uh, that that is you know not just something that is uh, from what the regulation describes as ordinary bonding and attachment that good cause can be shown. I mean, the, the, after the 2016 regulation, the the placement preferences are effectively dispositive in many cases. Council, can I take you to the scope of the Indian power? We've described it as plenary. It's quite broad, and in area after area, we've well, the con- we've allowed Congress to far exceed anything that we would think of as just commerce in the sense of trade, you know, which is something that you've floated. Are you asking us to overrule all of those precedents? No, Your Honor. Um, I, I, I'm not going to speak for uh, my colleagues on the from the state of Texas, but for our for our part, no, we're not. We don't think you need to overrule any of the precedents because you'd have us just focus on the equal protection. No, Your Honor. I mean, j- j- on on the Article One piece. They, I, this cannot be understood as within the, the court's Indian Commerce Clause precedence. It's not commerce in any, uh, in any normal sense of that word. The question is then whether it is part of the plenary power that otherwise has been uh, described in this court's precedence. And our submission is that that plenary power is, if you, if you, uh, in the court's cases, as elaborated in this court's cases, that plenary of power applies to the tribe's areas of its sovereign interests, tribal lands, treaty powers, its internal affairs, its ability to self-govern. It's not a power to regulate Indians everywhere, wherever they might be in the jurisdiction of the United States. So what do you do with that line of cases, like the Act of 1888, 
setting the evidentiary standard for proving a marriage in cases involving an Indian woman and a white man. That wasn't limited territorially. That set an evidentiary standard. Or the Trade and Intercourse Act of 1834 set burdens of proof in all trials, whether on reservations or outside of reservations, about property rights between Indians and non-Indians. The Act of 1799, state courts must take proper bail when federal officers detain offenders who trespassed into Indian territory. So that one arguably had something to do with that, but there's a legion of cases, as Justice Barrett alluded to, where Congress has um, gone off of Indian lands, had nothing to do with sovereignty, had to do nothing to do with trade or commerce or commerce, but with intercourse, with the relationship with Indians, whether on or off reservations. Well, Your Honor, I, I guess my I would have two parts to my response. The first is that the the Constitution confers a, an authority to regulate commerce, and that power, as understood, um, as Justice Thomas's separate opinion and adoptive couple, I think. Well but that elaborates. was a separate opinion. We've described the power as more plenary than that. Well, I, and I think this is just the the fundamental portion of my submission, and I respect the fact that we might not agree on this, but that there is a commerce power that, that allows the government to regulate commerce wherever it happens within the United States. And then there is, in addition to that, a plenary power that allows the tribes, allows the government, the federal government, to regulate the tribes, and that arises from the federal government's you know, role as the subjugating sovereign of the tribes and its role as the now under Kagama, the protector of those tribes. But that power is not unlimited. It well, why does, is it limited by geography? You, you're suggesting that the power, the plenary power that you describe, is limited by the tribal land demarcation. And I don't understand where that comes from. Well, I, I don't think it's just tribal land, Your Honor, although as this Court's decision in Plains Commerce Bank uh, says, that is the, the, the core of tribe sovereign interests, but it also would extend to treaty rights, uh, the internal affairs of the tribe, and the laws that, that address the scope and form of tribe self-government. All right, so you concede that Congress has plenary power over tribal sovereignty and self-government then? Try, uh, I believe that Congress absolutely has the power to, to adjust and change the scope of tribes' power to govern themselves. All and right. So w- what do we do with the legislative history in uh, regard to this act in which Congress repeatedly referred to the kinds of, of uh restrictions and regulations in this area, in ICWA, as a matter of tribal governance and self, uh, you know, self-government and sovereignty. I mean, Congress said things like there's no resource that is more vital to the continued existence and integrity of Indian tribes than their children. They constantly cast regulations regarding children, Indian children, as a matter of tribal integrity self-governance, existence. So why isn't that enough to bring it within the, the, the scope of their plenary power? 
Addressing the tribal existence point, I have four responses to that. The first is that the third placement preference doesn't even rationally advance that objective. Placing a Seminole child with a Cherokee family doesn't rationally advance the existence of either tribe. The second point is that placement does not dictate membership. You need only look as far as YRJ to show that. Right, but I feel like you're in the weeds of the actual regulation. What I'm asking you is the broader question about whether or not Congress has the ability to regulate in this area. I understood your response to Justice Barrett to be not anything outside of commerce or uh, the plenary power expanding to or extending to self-governance and uh, self-regulation. So I'm just asking as a matter of characterization, why aren't regulations that concern whether or not Indian children are going to remain in the tribes fitting within that plenary power? Your Honor, in Williams versus Ali, this court described the power of self-government as the power of reservation Indians to make their own laws and to be ruled by them. ICWA has nothing to do with that. Counsel, counsel, um, I'm struggling to understand your argument. For the first half of it, I heard policy complaints. It took a while for me to even hear the words equal protection or Article One. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, first of all, which do you think is your better argument? We're, Legally, uh, not, not, the policy arguments might be better addressed across the street. Um, Justice Gorsuch, uh, as you uh, — we are here uh, to advance both arguments, but I'd like to talk about the equal protection argument. Okay, so if the equal protection is your better argument, what do we do about your standing problem? You've sued federal officials, um, not the state courts who actually are tasked with operating — I think my answer to that, uh, Justice Gorsuch, starts with the traceability standard, which is de facto causation. And then I would say— No federal official can dictate to a state family court what to do, can he? Uh, I'm sorry, I did not hear the question. Can any federal official that you sued tell a state court what to do? Um, No, Your Honor. Okay, I would think that might be the end of it. What am I missing? Two things, Your Honor. First is— fact that the traceability standard is de facto causation, and as shown in the Court's decision in Bennett versus Speer, the, the agency that issues the regulation is the de facto cause of a separate party that implements it. That is what's going on here. We have a statute here. here. You're asking us to enjoin somebody from operating a statute. We also the only are, people who operate this statute are state court judges we, we and are, tribal judges. We also are asking the court uh, to affirm the judgment vacating the 2016 rule on the grounds that it implements an unconstitutional statute. And, then, and that equal would protection. Provide- Fine. Let's say you've got standing. I'm, I'm, I'll spot you that for the purpose of this question. How is this an invidious racial classification rather than a political classification? Uh, tribes are, are mentioned in the Constitution, and in fact, we have the treaty power, which mentions tribes as separate, indicates that they're separate sovereigns. Your Honor, the court explained in Rice versus Cayetano that tribal classifications cannot be used in regulation of state affairs. It drew a line between the regulation, the use of tribal classifications in regulating tribal internal affairs and regulating the affairs of the state. You agree that the Congress can treat with tribes, right? 
Of course, Your Honor. Of course. And in Mankari, we held this as a political classification, right? Uh, with respect to the hiring preference there at issue. Yeah. Okay. So let's turn to your Article I. Um, and I, I'm struggling to understand what it is because you've seen to — I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll carry on later, Chief. Sure. Yeah. Justice Thomas? Uh, briefly, counsel, um, is there a difference between uh, regulating a tribe or tribal affairs and regulating someone who happens to be Indian? Um, Your Honor, I think it depends on the context. Somebody who, uh, if you buy the word Indian. Well, in this case, what, I mean, I, I don't want to get the whole uh, range. Uh, we're talking about. Uh, children who do not reside on a reservation, right? They are covered by the statute, yes. Uh, who uh, uh, are not necessarily members of a tribe. Correct, Your Honor. And that's what I'm interested in. Is there a difference between regulating a tribe or a reservation and regulating someone who happens to be uh, have some Indian blood? Um, Your Honor, I, I would submit certainly not in this case. Congress here told us what it was doing. It was identifying a class of persons who had blood in common. That's at page 20 of the House report. It wanted to put the, that class of people in the Indian community writ large. I don't think that's what I'm asking, and I'll stop with this. Um, what I'm asking is... Assuming there is plenary authority for the national government to uh, treat with or regulate tribal affairs and affairs on reservations or related to reservations, is there a difference when someone happens to be an Indian not on a reservation, not a part of a tribe, not associated with a tribe, it, do we consider them the same, or do we consider them differently? Because that someone is also a citizen of the United States. And I'm asking you, are we to just put them all in one ball simply because you can regulate tribal affairs? No, Your Honor, because you know, at least in Mankari itself, it recognized that the, that the hiring preference there was limited to tribal Indians. And there the court recognized that Mankari, the, the hiring preference, was a, in a sui generis agency that had a special relationship in the governance of tribes qua tribes. And this, I, I think, is perhaps the, you know, addresses the point of your question. There is a difference between regulating tribes as a polity and regulating persons who happen to have tribal blood as persons. Justice Alito? Justice Sotomayor, anything further? You're not suggesting, but I think you may be, that um, Congress's power is only with respect to tribes and not Indians? They can't regulate the relationship between Indians and others, whether they're on the tribe or not? So all those laws I read about previously at the founding, they were unconstitutional to start with? Your Honor, because they I, had nothing to do with reservations. They had to do with individuals. Your, I think you know, some of the laws you cited, I think, have you know, serious equal protection problems, um, including, for instance, uh, there's a law that's still on the books that provides for the federal government to forcibly enroll 
uh, Indians in boarding schools. That's 25 U.S.C. 302. Um, so there are some serious equal protection problems in some of the cases that you cited. That might be, uh, but statutes. that has nothing — that doesn't talk to us about what you're suggesting in answer to Justice Thomas, which is that the plenary power is limited to dealing with tribes and not indiv- not the treatment of individual members. What I was talking about with Justice Thomas, Your Honor, is uh, how the, the, the difference of a political classification and a racial classification. And I, the, the, our submission is that a classification is political when it when it regulates the tribe's you know, sovereign interests, which is to say regulating the tribe as a polity, when it regulates Indian land, its so treaty rights. So you're saying, rights. yes, they can't do only individuals if it has to do with the limited sovereignty question. Is that what you're saying? As an equal protection matter, okay. whether it — I understand, sir. Justice Kagan? Uh, I'm not sure I do, so I'm going to continue on the same vein. Um, uh, We have a long history of cases uh, where we've understood legislation relating to the tribes as as political in nature, not as racial. I think you have one case, which is rice. And so I want to, on the one hand, say, what do you do with this long line of cases which has consistently said when you regulate the tribes, you're regulating political entities. And then uh, on rice, you know, a very different situation. Number one, a 15th Amendment case not involved here, right to vote. But even more important than that, really the classification did not relate to a tribe. It related to some centuries-old affiliation uh, with Native Hawaiians, which was much harder to understand as a current-day political entity. So um, so I guess I think Rice doesn't do much for you, and then all these other cases really knock uh, the legs out from this argument, and I'm wondering whether you would comment on that thought. Sure. Um, let me start with Rice. Uh, I think Rice does explain those that long line of cases that you refer to, uh, it cites them, um, you know, I think at page 519, it cites Moe, Fisher, uh, Antelope. This is the line of cases that I think you're referring to. And these are cases that deal with tribe sovereign interests in Indian lands, treaty rights. That's the fishing vessel case. Uh, you, the ability of Indians to govern themselves, that's Fisher. Uh, and its internal affairs. That is the, ha- that is the line that, that Rice drew and how Rice understood Mankari and the line that Mankari itself drew. This, this distinction uh, that I'm drawing is rooted in Mankari itself because Mankari says that it would be a much more difficult question if the hiring preference there extended to the whole of the federal government. I mean, Mankari is such a different sort of case, right? Mankari is Indians are are in a long list of other racial classifications. Um, It was quite clear that uh, that was the BIA one. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I was was mistaken. Um, But um, I I guess, again, I'm sort of struggling with how different the classification in Rice was to the classifications here. So I, um, I understand the question, Your Honor. Rice... This was, uh, you know, the 
at the core of the Rice decision. Rice starts by assuming what it calls your premises not established in our case law, both that Native Hawaiians uh, should be treated as an Indian tribe and further that Congress delegated to the state of the Hawaii the power to regulate them. That, that the court assumed that, assumed that they are an Indian tribe, that Hawaii had the power to regulate. And then it held that the tri- that Hawaii or Congress could not regulate a tribe in this way because it was regulating the affair of a state, not the tribe's own self-government. And I think you know, the, the point I, further point I would make about Rice is that Rice, the, the, the statute there had a much closer tie to self-government. It was the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. It had a much closer tie to self-government than the Indian Child Welfare Act. Well, the first thing you need for self-government is, you know, a, a functioning um, polity. And Congress is very clear in this statute, that it thinks that this statute is critical to the continuing existence of the tribe as a political entity. And that's, in fact, one of the reasons it passes this statute, is the political entity is itself being threatened because of the way uh, uh, decisions on the placement of children are being made. So I I guess I can't imagine uh, a, a, a statute that's more wrapped up, given given the terms and given what we know about what Congress was doing, uh, is more wrapped up in the continued flourishment of political communities. Your Honor, the uh, placement preferences do not affect tribal membership. You can be a member of the tribe wherever you are placed. And it is, you know, the fact that tribes often do unilaterally enroll children regardless of where they are placed. The further point I would make, Your Honor, is that embedded in, in the, the, the question is, is a premise that tribes have a proprietary interest in these children, and I have to reject that premise. Well, this tribes- is Congress's understanding of what it was doing. You know, and again, this goes back to Justice Gorsuch's view of you can question the policy, you cannot question the policy, but the policy is for Congresses to make. And Congress understood these uh, 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 children's placement decisions as integral to the continued thriving of Indian communities. And Congress had a different view of the costs and benefits of how these decisions were being made. And that's not something that we can second guess, is it? It is under the Constitution, Your Honor. I think the, the, the Congress does not have the power to treat these children as property of the we, tribes we because second, of their ancestry. We can second-guess things under the Constitution if you have uh, made a case about an equal protection violation or some other constitutional violation. But what I'm suggesting is that just the idea of standing up there and saying this has nothing to do with um, uh, 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 the continued thriving of Indian political communities, um, uh, that's a judgment for Congress to make. There, uh, I want to be clear about this. There was a, a real problem that, that Congress was trying to address. We're not denying that there, the existence of a problem, but the means Congress chose are impermissible. Two wrongs do not make a right here. Thank you, Mr. Micko. Justice Gorsuch. Counsel, let's put aside your equal protection complaints, which is what I understand the heart of your response to Justice Kagan. On the Article I argument, you argue this whole area is outside Congress's control. 
all right? At least that's how I understood it going in. But I'm now wondering, um, I am confused by your argument. Do you acknowledge that Congress has some off-reservation or off-tribal land power? Congress can Article 1. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, Congress may, under the Indian commerce power, regulate commerce with Indian tribes wherever it occurs. So... So you agree, for example, with our precedent going back to 1865 that says in reference to any Indian tribe or any person who is a member of such tribe is absolute without reference to the locality of the tribe or the member of the tribe with whom it's carried on. You agree with that? Um, I'm not exactly sure which case you're referring to, but I Holiday. agree with the – I think the print – pardon? Holiday. Right. There's equal protection problems there, but, but I'm, yes. I'm asking you to put yes. that aside. So, so Congress can regulate off-reservation. It can regulate commerce with, uh, with Indians off-reservation. Okay. Yes. And um, would you have us, uh, if, if your view of commerce is that narrow, as, as, as it portrayed in your brief, what happens to Congress's power to regulate health care for Indians off-reservation? That's a major part of Title 25. I, would that I, go? I don't think our, uh, our view of commerce is any uh, more limited than the court described in Lopez. Um, so I, I so would— So that might go. Uh, no, I don't the believe urban, so. I, ur- I, that would stand. They could regulate health care for Indians off-reservation. Yes or no? I think it, to the extent that it is a—you're regulating articles of commerce, it comes within the, the heartland health, of— Health care counts? It, count, it comes within the heartland of how Lopez defined commerce, as I understand it. Health care counts, but this doesn't. This is so treating children as property. Forget about the equal protection no, argument but it, for the it goes to the commerce. Counsel, if I'm — so commerce includes health care but not education. Is, is that — and, 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 and child-rearing. Is that, is that your view? Uh, no. It's uh, — you inserted education. Um, but our position is that the commerce power does not extend to — child placement decisions. So it, okay, so let's talk about that. If we've put aside the off-reservations, so this really has to do with something about family law. I, 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 I take it the core of your complaint then. This, this is a family law case. And that's Honor. the core of the problem in your view, that Congress can't regulate family law matters for Indians off-reservation? I think the, the core of the problem is if this is within Congress's authority, then there is nothing that cannot be regulated by Congress if it touches upon Indians. How about the fact that the federal government does lots of other family law mediation between sovereigns? Uh, The Parent Kidnapping Act, for example, uh, domestically with respect to disputes among states, Congress speaks there. And as Justice Sotomayor mentioned, when there's a dispute between sovereigns, uh, foreign sovereigns, it speaks there, and we don't question its authority to do so. Wouldn't it be a little odd to think that it couldn't do the same here? With respect to the latter point, uh, Congress, of course, has power to enact laws to implement treaties. And uh, so I I think the Hague Convention-type legislation is unremarkable. I think Congress acts in this— How about the parent kidnapping statute? I will confess to not being familiar with that one, but if you look at perhaps— We'll we'll, we'll put that aside, then, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, You're saying it would be possible to do it under the treaty power— what if Congress tomorrow adopted a treaty with the tribes that replicated ICWA? Would that be within its power? Uh, it would perhaps. I, I think it perhaps would be within the, its Article One power. That's my question. Yeah, 
It would be. Okay. Uh, and how about if it did it under the spending clause? That, could that be within its Article I power? Well, that's how Congress regulates the states in the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act. So and it could do these things under Article I. You're just complaining that it's done it, being done under the Indian Commerce Clause. I think that uh, that is our argument. We're not saying that Congress is powerless in this area. Congress has power, certainly through the, uh, the spending clause, to do any number of things with respect to uh, state, how states govern themselves. When it comes to placement of uh, <coughs> uh, children, is, is it a little anachronistic to think that states have some particular sovereign interest here when many of them did not involve themselves at all in placement matters directly until the 1960s? Um, mostly done privately for most of the nation's history. I don't know that I would describe it as anachronistic, um, but I think it, the fact that things were done privately uh, does not change what this court has said about the, the state's primary role in the area of child custody matters. How about the fact that the federal government um, has been historically involved in family law matters with respect to Native Americans for a long time? Uh, as Justice Kagan pointed out, it passed the statute in, in, in kind of uh, to remedy its prior actions in this area with respect to boarding schools and the displacement of Native American children. So could it, could it have done the boarding schools, or is your arguing that's, that would have been improper too? I, I, I think the boarding schools statute requiring the, or, or permitting the forcible enrollment of Indian children in boarding schools without the consent of their parents is obviously unconstitutional. Under Article I? Um, yes, because it has nothing to do with commerce, in my, would be my submission. Okay. And then back to Justice Kagan's questions. If commerce does include things essential to Indian self-governance, I think you've conceded that, tribal lands, tribal uh, governmental arrangements, I, I guess I'm struggling to understand why, why this falls on the other side of the line um, when Congress makes the judgment that this is essential to Indian self-governance. The preservation of, uh, of Indian tribes. The, the power uh, that has been recognized is the power to effectuate Indian self-government, which is the power of tribes to make their own laws and be ruled by them. And ICWA does not affect tribes' ability to make their own laws. It doesn't affect their ability to be ruled by them, except with respect to Section 1911A, which provides for exclusive jurisdiction of children, you know, pertaining to children who are resident on tribal lands. Lastly, is there some irony in your position that you're here to vindicate states' rights? We have 23 states who've lined up on the other side. We've never had a state court, and near as I can tell, in the 40-some years since ICWA was adopted, complaining about this arrangement. Um, I don't understand that to be correct, Your Honor. I think there are state courts that have recognized uh, that ICWA has uh, far exceeds Congress's. Has any has, have state courts held that this is unconstitutional? Uh, there's the ca the cases that held that it uh, under what was known as the existing Indian Family Doctrine that said that it would be unconstitutional as applied to a child who had no connection to right. a tribe. Fair, but I'm not aware of anybody holding ICWA facially unconstitutional in the manner that you're asking us to do. Uh, no, I, I, I would concede that no state court has, has gone anywhere. Done that. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? 
Earlier, in response to Justice Jackson's question about the legislative history, you said you had four responses. You got out one and two uh, about the Cherokee Seminole, and then the placement does not equal membership. I was interested in what three and four are, if you remember the question. Uh, I think I do, Justice Kavanaugh. The third point um, is that the uh, that the placement, to the extent we're talking about tribal self-government, which is to say the ability of tribes to make their own laws, the ability under Williams, reservation Indians, to make their own laws and be ruled by them, the placement preferences do not even suggest that any Indian child has to live on or near a reservation. And the fourth point, which is the most fundamental point, which is that embedded in this argument is that tribes have a proprietary interest in these, in these children. And they are human beings. They are citizens of the United States and the states in which they reside. They are persons within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment. And they have liberty interests that the tribe cannot override simply by unilaterally enrolling them. On the equal protection issue, it will be important for us to figure out the scope and limits of Moncari. And I'm going to ask two hypotheticals and then ask you to explain what I think will be your answer. So one, would Moncari justify a hiring preference for American Indians in other agencies beyond the BIA, such as the Treasury Department or the Justice Department, for example, in your view? No, because one, Moncari itself um, casts doubt on that possibility, and two, there would be no um, tether to Indian self-government. Second, would Mankari alone justify a federally mandated preference for um, uh, state universities, college admissions for American Indians, in your view? No, Your Honor. And why not? Again, because it would have no tether to Indian self-government. I think part of the flaw of the, you know, the arguments on the other side here is that it it reduces to anything that is good for Indians that could be characterized in that way or that the government in its paternalistic judgment thinks might be good for Indians can be uh, is permissible well, under their that view. Would be good for Indian self-government in the sense of uh, ensuring uh, uh, additional better education for American Indians? Why wouldn't that justification uh, link up uh, with tribal self-government? It's too attenuated, Your Honor. Rice, I think, explains this. Rice draws this line between regulation of the tribe's internal affairs and the use of tribal classifications there and the use of tribal classifications in the affairs of the state. In your hypothetical, we're talking about the affairs of the state. And I think that the important point about Rice is that there, there, in that case, there was a not just a plausible, a fairly direct tie to self-government of the indigenous people, but the court said Mankari could not be extended to that new context because Mankari was a limited exception based on the, quote, sui generis role of the BIA in regulating Indian tribes. And that's just simply not present in your hypothetical. Thank you. Justice, <coughs> Justice Barrett. Mr. McGill, I'd like to ask you about the commandeering argument. 
So I want to focus just on the active efforts provision for right now. I want to get a grip on how this works. You know, so that provision requires the party seeking to affect a foster care placement or termination of parental rights to satisfy the court that active efforts have been made to provide remedial services and rehabilitation programs designed to prevent the breakup of the Indian family. And the, the government says, well, this applies to both private parties and state agencies. And so it's not directed at the state agencies and compelling government action and compelling the state to take steps. How does this work? Uh, do private agencies, in the Brackeen's case, I mean, do private agencies initiate these proceedings, or really is this something that falls on the states? I think on the ground it falls on on the states in the overwhelming majority of of of, uh, of cases. I mean, I can't speak to the to the whole of the United States, and uh, but my understanding is in the overwhelming majority of cases, it falls on the states to do this, and that is the you know, of course, they are the ones that have the ability to do so. Okay, thanks, Justice Jackson. Yes, so I, I think there's an aspect of your Article One argument that really boils down to um, a. The fundamental question that comes up in the law a lot, which is who decides? Who decides whether regulation in this area counts uh, for uh, Indian self-government, promotes Indian self-government, has a sufficient tether? I I keep hearing you say in response to many of my colleagues' questions uh, that you think that regulation related to family affairs uh, does not have a sufficient connection to Indian self-government, but in the actual legislative history of this uh, ICWA, uh, and I'm reading from the Federal Register, Congress says, it indicates that ICWA reflects its, quote, concern about preserving the integrity of tribes as self-governing sovereign entities and ensuring that tribes could survive both culturally and politically. That's 81 Fed Re- uh, Federal Register 38781. So it seems to me that Congress has made a decision that regulating in this area is important for preserving the integrity of tribes as self-governing sovereign entities. And therefore, I don't think it's sufficient for you to say to us that you think that that's not true. So tell me how we're supposed to decide based on your view of whether or not this is a sufficient tether as opposed to what Congress has said about it? Um, I would first, I I guess I have two responses to that, Justice Jackson. First is I would look to this court's cases that define the interest in self-government. And I would start with Williams versus Lee, which defines it as the right or the ability of reservation Indians to make their own laws and be ruled by them. Um, that, that case has never been, you know, to my knowledge, limited or abrogated, and that is my understanding of how this court defines the interest in self-government. But why would but, that be our decision then? I'm still worried that that would be this court displacing Congress's policy judgment around what counts. Because the text of the statute and its, you know, and its operative effect does not advance the objective there. The, if the objective is preserving the existence of tribes, the third placement preference does nothing to effectuate that. All right, let me ask you another question. Um, you have seemed to be 
very upset about Congress's exercise of plenary authority over Indian affairs. You say we need to look at it in a more narrow lens, I guess consistent with the sort of general understanding that Congress has limited authority. What I'm a little bit confused about and concerned about is whether it's really correct that we have to look at it so narrowly, that is, the scope of Congress's authority as it concerns Indian affairs, when we have said over and over again that Congress has plenary and exclusive authority and when the history of our Constitution indicates that the constitutional design was about ensuring, in a way, that the federal government had the authority over the tribal relations, tribal uh, uh, affairs, and not the states. It seemed to me that baked in to the Constitution's structure related to this, outside of just the Indian Commerce uh, Clause provision, is the notion that the federal government, uh, you know, vis-a-vis the states, was going to be taking charge of this, especially in light of the Articles of the Confederation uh, uh, precedent. So if that's the case, then what, what would you say about the thought that rather than, you know, searching for, you know, what additional limits there are on Congress's authority, we start with the premise that with respect to Indian affairs, Congress has plenary authority, and therefore, as we've said in all of these prior cases, as long as it involves Indian affairs um, and Congress is making policy judgments, they have a constitutional basis for doing so. Justice Jackson, if, the, if this arises from the constitutional structure, as you suggested, then it has to be the United States, gov- the, the United States government's regulation of tribes as on a government-to-government basis. That's the constitutional structure point. And if we're talking about regulating tribes as government, governments, we are talking about regulating their residual sovereign interests, which are, as I described, in Indian lands, their treaty rights. Yeah, but do you dispute that there's a trust relationship? My understanding was that, yes, we're talking sovereign to sovereign, but that as a part of that was the understanding that the United States was the greater sovereign, that it was taking over the Indian sovereignty and therefore had a trust relationship uh, that arose in that context, and they were responsible for Indian affairs as a result. Do you dispute that? We don't. Of course we do not dispute the existence of the trust relationship. All we're saying is that the power that Congress exercises that has been described as plenary is limited in some way by the, by the sovereign so interests that... that Congress, Congress can carry out and effectuate its trust relationship but only in the limited ways that you are now articulating? Uh, no, Your Honor. I think what we're saying is that there, you don't have to do anything with respect to con- the federal government's trust relationship with Indian tribes to recognize that that power does not extend to regulating the placement of Indian children in state courts. Even if Congress has decided... That, that regulation in that area is necessary to prevent the extinction of tribes. They can't do it, you're saying, pursuant to the trust relationship that you seem to concede exists. Um, Your Honor, 
we do not concede that that for the reasons that I elaborated, that this is not a uh, — the tribes do not have a proprietary interest in these children. They are also — take a — take YRJ. Can I just — I'm sorry. Um, can I just ask one more question? My time is short. With respect to commandeering, where uh, Justice Barrett took you, do you have a case that is older than the early 1990s related to the commandeering principle? Is that the first time — I tried to look back to figure out where anti-commandeering came from as a constitutional concept. And I'll tell you I'm concerned about it because I think it's relatively recent, and I'm just trying to understand whether it even conceivably applies to an area in which we have already or or long recognized that the federal government has this sort of plenary authority because states were — interfering with Indian affairs. And so it seems to me odd that we would suddenly say in this area, using a relatively new anti-commandeering principle, that the federal government can't do what it has long done in terms of taking control of this area away from the states uh, related to Indian affairs. Um, Your Honor, this Court's anti-commandeering cases recognize that the doctrine arises from the structure of the Constitution and the Tenth Amendment. Um, that was obviously recognized in fully uh, by New York versus the United States, but uh, as I in recall, um, but as I recall, there there was a case called Coil that I think is from the 1920s, maybe 1925, that involved the federal government's uh, dictating where Oklahoma put its uh, state capital, and I think that uh, was the earliest case I found that actually applied some version of the. But we don't have any anti-commandeering cases that. Um, that are, arise in the Indian affairs context. This would be the first time? Uh, I'm not aware of any, Your Honor. Thank you. Ex- I, t- do you have a further? I, I, I would I just accept to the extent that Oklahoma, of course, um, arose from once upon a time being Indian territory. Thank you, Counsel. General Stone? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress cannot require states to administer a nationwide child custody regime. As far as the state is aware, this Court has upheld only three kinds of laws, even under a plenary congressional power over Indian tribes. First, those regulating trade or implementing treaties with tribes than the ordinary original understandings of those clauses. Second, those applying to Indians within U.S. territories or on Indian lands. And third, those regulating tribal governments as such. ICWA far exceeds this plenary power, applying only to child custody proceedings in state courts off-reservations. Even if Congress could establish such a scheme, however, it cannot order states to enforce it. ICWA issues a dozen commands to states or their officials. Each obscures federal accountability for ICWA, and each foists uncompensated costs onto states. Each is therefore prohibited under Murphy. And I welcome the Court's questions. I think, General Stone, it would uh, profit us uh, that uh, if you would address your standing in this case. 
particularly since it seems that if, uh, to the extent that you're representing parents or uh, potential parents, uh, they can represent themselves. And I think it would be good to get an explanation of your standing. Certainly, Your Honor. First and foremost, consistent with West Virginia versus EPA from last term, Texas is, in fact, the regulated party, the party obligated to implement ICWA from beginning to end. As this Court put it in West Virginia, the fact that West Virginia and similar states were the ones who were required to cut emissions and otherwise alter their energy distribution, that was enough to leave, quote, little doubt as to their standing for the entirety of the Clean Power Plan. Second, Texas stands to lose substantial amounts of Medicare, or rather Social Security, Part 4B and Part 4E money. In 2018, Texas received $410 million underneath those parts. Those parts are expressly conditioned on Texas taking affirmative steps to comply with ICWA and the regulations implementing those sections, 45 CFR 1355.34 and 36 make clear in mandatory language that if Texas does not, in fact, do so, if any state does not do so, in mandatory language that the relevant administrative entity shall withhold through a complex formula up to 42 percent uh, of, that, of that $410 million for Texas. That comes out to about $172 million for an agency with a $2.4 billion budget. So a very significant amount. And then finally speaking is to their specific equal protection injury, aside from the fact that it costs us money to implement the equal protection violating provisions. For example, we have to determine whether or not an individual is an Indian child pursuant to the regulations in the statute. Aside from that, there's a unique conjunction of constitutional obligations here that because this Court has held in Adirond that the federal equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment's equal protection clause essentially have the same commands, any command by the federal government that violates the Fifth Amendment that imposes a mandatory requirement on states to essentially carry out that equal protection violative component requires the states to violate equal protection. And that is a unique constitutional injury that Texas as a state, as an actor, suffers. This is uh, quite a theory you have. Every time that a state has to interpret a federal law that might be unconstitutional, the state has standing even if that law hurts somebody else. That's what you're basically saying, because we would be complicit in the act of violating someone else's rights. That's how I hear your argument. Certainly not, Your Honor. It actually is much narrower than that. So take a... How narrower? You don't have, and Justice Thomas pointed out, the Fifth Amendment in our cases are legion. You can't represent individuals who have equal protection claims. The parents are here before us. They can defend their own claims. I can understand your anti-commandeering, your anti-delegation claims. Potentially that has to do with your expenses. But those other equal protection violations of being treated unequally belong to the parents, not to Texas. Two components, Your Honor. First of all, Texas suffers a classic pocketbook injury when it has to actually implement... So you're saying exactly what I started with. You're taking the extraordinary position that any time you have to enforce an unconstitutional law, you're complicit and you have standing. 
No, Your Honor. No. It's, it results from a conjunction of a few extremely unusual components of these commands. One is, and we can discuss this as part of our, the anti-commandeering section, we do not view these commands as permissible preemption under NCAA versus Murphy, but as commands to the states. Those commands from that's the anti federal com government — That's anti-commandeering, so that's one factor. What's second? The commands from the federal government themselves violate the Fifth Amendment's equal protection component. That equal protection As it applies to the individuals? Yes. Okay. That's correct. And, and we're back to what I said before. Now, what's your third? Your Honor, because, because that Fifth Amendment equal protection violation is coterminous with Texas's equal protection requirements, if Texas implements the Fifth Amendment violation, it itself violates the Fourteenth Amendment. Because they are, in fact, co we're back. We're back to my first point. General Stone, can I ask you about the anti-commandeering point? So I'm trying to figure out how this works. So the question that I asked Mr. McGill, is this the active efforts provision, one that imposes an obligation on the states alone, or is it something that could also fall on private agencies or private parties? Well, the final rules preamble helps solve this question as specifically to, to the active efforts provision, where the final rule states that the active efforts provision in ICWA was intended to make states provide substantive services to Indian families. comes out in, in express language to make states, in fact, incur that cost to provide social services. That's the heart of what Murphy was cautioning about, is that specifically a command best understood as requiring a state to do a thing especially when it either hides political accountability or foists uncompensated costs on the states, is in the heartland of the anti-commandeering doctrine. This, under that second branch, is an easy case for purposes, for purposes specifically of active efforts. We have other provisions we're challenging with other bases. Happy to discuss if, if you're curious. Well, record-keeping seems to go a bit farther than some of our other cases. We reserved that in Prince. This Court reserved it in Prince with some very specific caveats, I agree, Your Honor. Specifically, the Court said it might, in fact, be permissible, given that, and as Justice Scalia noted, it was unclear in that case, given that those courts regarding the naturalization oaths may well have volunteered, essentially, to that jurisdiction. And then it becomes a case of if the courts are willingly serving for purposes of, of doing this federal thing, that then it's a much smaller intrusion, commandeering or not, for them to have an ancillary paperwork burden. Of course, states aren't volunteering for ICWA in the first place. And I think the thinness of the historical evidence specifically on this point comes from the seven laws that respondents cite. Of those, two of them are patently unconstitutional on other grounds. One is one of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Another is essentially a law that required a court make a determination on pension eligibility that was reviewable by an executive branch. So those tell us nothing about the Constitution because they're riven with a plain constitutional violation. Two more essentially have nothing to do with states at all, or one more has nothing to do with states at all, which is the Homesteading Act of 1862, does not mention state courts or state governments in any way, cannot possibly tell us anything about anti-commandeering. Two more past that make it up permissible, but not mandatory, for states to accept bail regarding certain federal fugitives or federal prisoners. And the only two left are the same two that are mentioned in Prince regarding record-keeping for naturalizations, with the, which this Court looked at as essentially not enough to determine the question even there. So the laws they give as historical evidence are far from something to demonstrate even what Prince showed, let alone enough of generalized no-courts component. But, Mr. Stone, that assumes that anti-commandeering applies in this entire area. And can you speak to my concern about that? I understood from New York versus United States that anti-commandeering 
rests on the premise that Congress has the power to regulate individuals and not states, which may well be true as a general matter, but in terms of Indian affairs, we have long interpreted the Constitution to give Congress plenary authority um, precisely because uh, the Constitution seems to be structured to give Congress, the federal government, power at the expense of the states with respect to Indian affairs. It's sort of like the, the, the background principle of all of this was that states were getting involved in Indian affairs, and the Constitution says, no, Congress can, is the one that gets to direct it. I don't understand why wrapped up in that authority isn't Congress's authority to, to direct the states to stay out of the way or to do whatever it is that's necessary to ensure that, you know, Indian affairs, Indian sovereignty is protected. Two answers, Your Honor. Yes. One coming from this Court's case law and then one from the original materials. One, and this is the nearest analog of which I'm aware, of course, this Court was brought an argument that under the Indian Commerce Clause was a sufficiently plenary power to breach state sovereign immunity. Uh, that seminal tribe in this court rejected that, and not only rejected that argument, it overturned Union Gas in the process. So this court has recognized, it actually made this explicit in Delaware versus Weeks, there may be a plenary power, but it is not absolute. And the, the lack of that absolute component has been you has been sort of applied for specifically preserving the sovereign prerogatives of the states before. Council, That's the if I might um, interrupt, I'm sorry, but just I want to understand your commandeering argument. It seems like it's centrally related to two rather modest aspects of ICWA. One is the record-keeping requirement, which you discussed with Justice Barrett. Is that right? That is one of them, yes. And the other major one that you, you cite is, um, is, is, is the active efforts provision. There are others we also challenge. Those are two of the most major, we agree. Okay. And, and those are the major ones. All right. And with respect to active efforts, I, I'm not sure I heard an answer to Justice Barrett's question. Um, I, I, her question was, does it apply equally to whomever is bringing the, um, the action in state court, whether it's the state, as it is sometimes, or private parties, as it is sometimes? That active efforts requirement, does it apply to both equally? To both yes, equally no. And so to both yes, it is under some circumstances that private parties have to make these efforts. Typically, that is the state, as again was acknowledged in the, in the final rule. Typically because it's the party um, activate, starting the proceedings, right? Typically, yes, but, but also— not, not always. Not always. No, that's correct. But also, later in the active efforts provision, recall again in this in Murphy, the court said the, the way that the court looks at it is, is this better looked at as a regulation of the sovereign or instead as something regulating private? Okay. I got the it. active efforts provision specifically speaks to what a state court may do with its official power. Right. May I come back to the question <clears throat> whether the anti-commandeering doctrine applies at all when Congress is exercising its power over Indians. <clears throat> Excuse me. Suppose Congress uh, enacted a law ordering the states to enact legislation uh, relating to Indians. Would that be a violation of the anti-commandeering doctrine? I think it would be about the most direct one conceivable, Justice Leto. Counsel, if, if we could turn to Article One, um, We've had many variations of this, this argument. We've heard that it has to relate strictly to commerce. We've heard no. Later today, we heard uh, no. It can be off-reservation. can be family law sometimes. It just can't be this combination here. 
What, what is — what exactly are you asking us to adopt here? What is beyond the Article I power? Certainly, Your Honor. So to clear up a, for a few things that you first mentioned, we are not claiming that there is a domestic relations exception generally. We're not saying that the powers that Congress enjoys must only be exercised on reservations or similarly. Okay. So, so Congress can act off reservations sometimes? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And it can do domestic relations sometimes? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. So what, what's, what's the magic broth that makes this somehow a problem, having conceded both those points? Certainly, Your Honor. It's because of the three components of what this Court has recognized as plenary power. The first, again, is, for example, the implementation of treaties or acts of, that would be ordinarily understood in commerce. This Court has described, for example, Congress as having a plenary power when Congress has prohibited uh, alcohol sales to tribes. Of course, forbidding the sale of alcohol or forbidding any other sale of good would just be an ordinary regulation of commerce. But, but you, we've disavowed that argument that it's strictly related to commerce. I, so again, what, what, what is the rule you would have us write? I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out how do I write the opinion? Certainly, Your Honor. There's three components to the plenary power. One are the ordinary applications of the various powers in the Constitution. Right. But which you say is it goes much beyond that. Just, so let's wh — wh where is the limit? The limits come from several of these courts' cases. One, this court has emphasized that Congress has special power. This comes from Tiger versus Western Investment Co. and Kagama itself, that the, the, the government has a power specifically speaking on regulating Indian members or rather Indian tribes on Indian lands themselves. Well, we, we, we've said that's not the limit here either. So again, that's, counsel, I'm, I, you've said it doesn't have to be on reservation and it can be domestic relations. So what's — how do you write this? Respectfully, Your Honor, Congress may act if it, if it is in one of three, essentially, parcels of power. One of them isn't related to geography at all. For example, the exercise of the treaty power, the exercise of, of the commerce power. Of course, the exercise of the territory clause would be geographically related. But in this first bucket, there is not a geographic component. The second, there is one, because as this Court recognized, the power goes specifically to the soil and the people within these limits, speaking of Indian country. The third is the power that Congress has essentially to act on Indian governments as governments. So, for example, expanding or investing them with tribal immunity, extending or foreclosing their ability to prosecute crimes or for other sovereigns to prosecute crimes on their land. If Congress is acting pursuant to one of those three components, then it falls comfortably either within the Congress's enumerated powers as originally understood or the plenary power, which we are not asking this Court even to contract. General, I'm, I'm curious as to where you get those three categories. They're a normative description of what this Court has, in fact, done. I mean, there's no, rather, place, what this court, uh, there's no place where we've said these are the three categories that define what the plenary power means. Correct? There are two places where Congress has specifically stated that there's a special power that track the second and third categories that I'm describing. One, for example, being for the third category regarding governments, being that the, the tribal power, the U.S. Uh, government enjoys essentially a complete power that the that tribal immunity or tribal sovereignty exists at Congress's sufferance. Of course, to say something exists at Congress's sufferance is to say they have something like yeah, an Yeah, I guess power. the only point I was making, that I'm sure that we can find places where the Court has said that um, Congress has power over each of these areas, but I don't think you'll be able to find a place where the Court has said what the plenary power means is these three things and these three things alone, and the plenary power doesn't extend further. Because, after all, the Court has said — I mean, I, I don't really believe in, in reading our opinions like statutes, 
But when the court uses the phrase plenary power tens and tens of times over decades and decades, I mean, plenary means unqualified. It means all-encompassing. Now, I don't doubt what you said earlier, that it might have an occasional exception here or there, but it strikes me as a very odd way to think about plenary power to just start, like, constructing categories and and saying everything else is left out when we've said over and over everything except really rare things are in. Two points, Your Honor. First, we agree that we are describing a power that has already left Article I constitutional bounds. Our core exhortation is because it is already beyond the original understanding of the powers Congress has that this Court shouldn't extend it further. This Court has not come out and said these are the three categories original and there shall be meaning, no more. We have Justices Marshall and Story basically using very broad language saying plenary powers means all powers in every intercourse with Indians. And we have a series of laws that were not limited in the way that you talked about, and we've had series of laws for 200 years not limited. You are excluding from that list all of the trust obligations that include all of the things that Justice Kavanaugh asked about you, health clinics, education, um, marital relations, Indian women who aren't married to white men. These are all outside the three areas you've talked about, but Congress has legislated in them, and certainly as far back as the founding of our Constitution, um, everyone understood plenary meant anything that had to do with the intercourse with Indians and then clearly with the trust obligation the United States took, as your colleague said at the beginning, took over this dependent sovereign nation and its members. Your Honor, I'd like to begin with your observations regarding the trust relationship and then go backwards to story and those uses of intercourse, if you will. The, regarding the trust obligation in Menominee Tribe of Wisconsin or Menominee Band of Wisconsin Indians and Hickory Apache Nation, this court made clear that, of course, the court has sometimes described a guardianship and ward relationship, a trust relationship. It has used a number of essentially metaphors to describe the relationship between the United States and the tribes, but the obligations underneath that trust, this is a, this is a core component of Hickorilla, come from positive law. They come from statutes which dictate obligations by the United States. We certainly don't doubt that. However, they do not have a common law component where, because there is in fact a trust, a trust relationship, then therefore the United States has plenary power to do as it wishes to Indians wherever. So regarding the historical understanding of intercourse, speaking specifically about Justice Story's commentaries, which my friends on the other side cite, he speaks about commerce and then speaks about trade and intercourse and pairs intercourse with navigation, just as this court did in Gibbons v. Ogden, which is to say, in Story's example, a rule, for example, about how foreign vessels are to dock in the United States, control over channels of commerce, at no point did Story comment on there being a general Indian affairs power. Also, though, I'm sorry to interrupt, but th- th- this new rule would, would, I think, take a huge bite out of Title 25 of the U.S. Code, which regulates uh, the federal government's relationship w- with tribal members. Um, there are health care provisions that um, Congress promises to Native Americans off-reservation. That doesn't seem to fall in any of your buckets. Um, uh, Congress has permitted tribes to exercise power over environmental regulations that have indirect 
effects off reservation. That would that would seem to go too. Um, we have laws that promise Native Americans access to sacred sites off reservation and religious liberties off reservation. Um, that that would seem to go. And I'm not even sure maybe the liquor sale those old precedents, but maybe that's commerce. I don't know. But there would be a lot that would be bitten out of Title 25. We'd be busy for the next many years striking things down. I don't think that's the case, Your Honor, and I'd like to start with Morton, which I think provides the first clue that that's not the case. When Morton was describing why the kind of preference that it, that it recognized would not violate equal protection was the case, it's because— I'm not talking about equal protection. I, I, I'm talking about Article One. I understand, Your Honor, but it was describing that virtually every Indian preference in Title 25 depended on a conjunction of an identifiable tribe of recognized Indians but that's on not the reservation. Tr- but that's simply not true. I mean, you can state that at the podium, but if I look through Title 25, there are health care promises to individual Native Americans who live in urban areas. So Let's just all, take that one. First of Go all, on. Your Honor, that strikes me as commerce, at least at least this court is Healthcare's interesting. Com- oh, commerce. So we're back to that. Okay, so health care is commerce. It's just this isn't. Whatever first this all, is. No, child adoptions are not commerce. They simply are not. But the health care is? Yes, oh, Your Honor. Okay. And, and environmental laws allowing regulation off reservation effects, that's, that's, that falls within commerce, but this doesn't? Entirely plausible. It's a function of either interstate or uh, either interstate commerce how, or— How about religious liberties and, and the right to access sites off, off reservation? Is that commerce? Not commerce, Your Honor, but that sounds, especially if there's a discriminatory component in the courts— No. —or in the commerce, Congress's no, it's section just promising five hours. A, you know, you're, no, the law just says you get access to, to places, and it preempts state law. Then there might be a, pro, a title. Like, there might, might be an go. Article One problem for the same reason why there wasn't RIFRA. Like right I now. say, I think there's a lot that you're asking us to. We're going to be busy, Council. If this is the line we're going to draw, very, very busy. We are not requesting that this court shrink at the plenary power it's recognized one bit. Everything that has been upheld previously on the same basis it's been upheld previously. And do you it's, agree with your colleague on the uh, who spoke earlier that Congress could effectively do this same law, uh, maybe with a few nibbles around the edges? Uh, commandeering, whatever, but could, could, could adopt something like ICWA through a treaty power and through the spending clause? I think the problem on the treaty power side is that it would provoke the question this Court left open in bond, which is the question of whether or not Congress may legislate pursuant to a treaty in a way that would exceed its Article I powers or other limits on the Constitution. I don't know what the answer to that question is, Your Honor, but that would be squarely presented at that S- point. Spending clause? Spending clause, at least the equal protection problem would remain, at least for that, for purposes of the spending clause. It would get around the anti-commandeering problems. So this is a magic words problem we have here today. Certainly not, Your Honor. Congress is not free, as a matter of fact, to regulate 50 state child child adoption proceedings on the basis of race, regardless of what it calls it. Can I ask you a question? Um, I'm going to list a series of statutes, and I just want a yes or no. Does Congress have the power to pass the statute? And second, why isn't it or is it anti-commandeering? Okay. The statute protecting service members from default judgments, including in child custody cases, which requires notice, appointment of counsel, stays of proceedings, and in some cases the setting aside of judgment. Does Congress have the power to pass that? Only under anti-commandeering problems or Article One. I said after Anti- under Article One. Under oh, under Article One, yes, that's fine for Article now, One purposes. You think it's a violation of the anti-commandeering statute? Yes, Your Honor. The statute on intercountry adoptions, 
which says that a state court must verify certain evidence and make certain determinations. Intercountry adoptions, foreign power, right? Yes. Is this anti-commandeering also? May I? Yes. I would have to know more about the treaty. It would not I, violate Article I 1 because of the you. treaty. I would have to Says know more that details. A, that a state court must verify certain evidence and make certain determinations before it permits the intercountry adoption. My first instinct is that that is right on the line. The verify component sounds as though it would be anti I've gone through. Your light is on. I'll wait to finish my examples. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Thomas? Justice Alito? All right. Then that's the 17... <laughs> getting it moving. The 1799 Trade and Intercourse Act, which requires state courts to take proper bail for certain individuals arrested by federal authorities. Can the government do that? To state courts? Article 1, yes. Anti-commandeering, no. Okay. This 1834 Trade and Intercourse Act, that sets the standards of proof in property disputes involving Indians. Certainly, Your Honor, in part because those were specifically applying to either United States territories or, as this Court observed in Castro Huerta, on Indian reservations, which at that point were understood functionally like federal enclaves. That's completely fine. How about uh, a law from 1888 setting forth certain evidence that an Indian woman could use in state court to prove that there was a common law marriage? Could they do that? I don't know, Your Honor. I have to see more about the statute because, for example, if there were a geographic component and a tribal component, assuming that might justify not. I Assuming or there's not, I don't think so. in any state court, they, they don't have Article One, and they, it's anti-commandeering violation, both? It's that it would be an anti-commandeering violation. It might, depending on the rest of the statute, it may or may not be an Article One violation. How about a statute that says that state law enforcement can enforce immigration law so long as they follow certain minimum procedures. Why isn't that anti-commandeering? Because it says can. It allows the statute, it allows the states to choose to do so or not. For the same reason that if Congress says, you may regulate or we will, but does not force states to do so, that's not a commandeering violation. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Kagan? General, I thought I'd just give you a chance to respond to um, uh, a reaction I had to your brief. And the reaction was that there is an extraordinary amount of Texas's view of policy uh, in your brief. So I'll just read you a few things. You say that ICWA subordinates the needs of Indian children, that it results in chaotic and often tragic outcomes, that it returns children to unsafe environments, that it excuses physical abuse, that it contributes to the alarming statistics surrounding Indian child welfare. I could go on. I haven't really even touched the surface. Um, now, this may be Texas's view. It's, it's not a view that uh, any other state has told us it's, it, it shares. I don't know whether Texas's view are right or not. I um, don't have any policy views in this area to speak of. I don't know enough. I mean, the point is courts don't know enough, really. Um, uh, this is a matter for Congress, isn't it? It's not a matter for the courts to decide whether ICRA does these terrible things or whether ICRA doesn't do any of them. Isn't that really Congress's judgment that we're supposed to respect? Uh, 
two parts, Your Honor. The first is I agree that those observations, those, those statements of Texas's views have nothing to do with non-delegate, or non-delegation, anti-commandeering, or, or Article I challenges whatsoever. Those live or die on various legal principles that are not those. They're just atmosphere. They're in part atmosphere, yes, Your Honor, in part because there's a dispute about whether or not equal protection, the equal protection standard here is rational basis or strict scrutiny. Now, my friends on the other side haven't attempted to defend this as a matter of strict scrutiny. And so to the extent that Congress is describing that it has a certain purpose, the fact that that purpose has been woefully unmet by the actual effects of ICWA is relevant for purposes of this Court's, albeit quite forgiving, rational basis standard. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch. You agree that uh, Congress could do something like ICWA if it were limited to children on reservations? Absolutely, Your Honor. If it were limited to something, if it were only applying to tribal members on tribal reservations, at least for tribal courts, it could give full jurisdiction to them. How do we deal with the fact that, you know, we've talked about reservations throughout this conversation and in the briefs, but Indian land throughout the western United States, as I'm sure you appreciate, after the post, after the allotment era, is full of checkerboards. And so you're going to have children who may be on allotted Indian land or next door to it, not on allotted Indian land. And uh, I, I, part of what you're doing, your, your argument would encourage, is for people to keep their children on Indian land, not necessarily allow them to be foster cared off Indian land, create a disincentive. And also just a massive amount of confusion if everything depends upon the happenstance of geography. Congress certainly has the power, if it wished, to be able to take new lands and essentially add them to allotments or reservations or to sort of deem for purposes of Article One of a, you know, an Indian land or a place of Indian land. This is the reservation or relevant Indian lands for purposes of when we're discussing how we're acting upon an Indian tribe. It might be the case that Congress actually has to appropriate money to take title to some of those provisions, but that would be the sort of administrative work that Congress can do. The, the can checkerboard problem just would persist. Unless Congress took actions to fix it, which it easily could with its enumerated powers. And then finally, it, it does seem like a lot of this focuses on, on the fact that this is family law. But and I, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to the same question I asked Mr. McGill on this, which is there are really two parts of it. One is the federal government often plays a role in mediating disputes between sovereigns in the family law area, whether it's the Hague Convention internationally or whether the Parent Kidnapping Act domestically. So why would it be awkward to think that Congress could exercise a similar authority with respect to disagreements between state sovereigns and tribal sovereigns? So so two points, Your Honor. The first, speaking of The Hague, of course, those are treaties between equal, full sovereign nations that are agreed to or not on the basis of when those sovereigns who each have a chance to walk away. The most fundamental difference here, of course, is that the states have no choice to walk away from ICWA. ICWA The states have no choice to walk. They they have to apply the Hague Convention, and they have to apply the Parent Kidnapping Act. They've got no choice in the matter. But the point is there's no mediating as between tribes and states on sovereigns. It's it's the United States is saying, you states shall do this, or through a combination of... That's exactly what it does in the Hague Convention Council and the Parent Kidnapping Act. It's state courts, you shall do this. It's a rule of decision that it sets forth. And for purposes of treaties, the Constitution recognizes that as an exclusive federal operation by conjunction of the power in Article 2 and removal of that from the states in Article 1, Section 10. Okay, so we're back to if they did this through treaty, it would be okay. Or at least it would be a lot closer. All right, and then how about the fact that the federal government has been heavily involved in domestic affairs on with respect to Native American children throughout our history, whether it's through treaties, orphan children, 
or whether it was through the, the boarding school saga of the last century. Um, why isn't that some evidence of, of, of plenary power in this area, too? Well, in part because, for example, with boarding schools, just the ordinary powers over territory and property or otherwise ordinary appropriations. They took children off reservation, counsel. I understand that, Your Honor, and I understand that there's no getting around the fact that both federal and state history regarding Indian tribes carries a variety of very shameful and terrible elements. You're saying it's all linked to territory. That one wasn't. The problem Same are, thing with all the treaties with respect to Native American orphans throughout the history of the country. The fact that there is a terrible problem Congress is attempting to remedy does not necessarily mean it has Article I power. After all, Congress attempted to, to remedy the nationwide problem of vicious domestic violence. And this Court said that VAWA nonetheless fell outside the Court's — outside Congress's Article I powers. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? I want to ask about the equal protection issue uh, quickly. Um, the equal protection issue is difficult, I think, because we have to find the line between two fundamental and fundamental and critical constitutional values. So on the one hand, the great respect for tribal self-government, uh, for the success of Indian tribes with, uh, and Indian peoples with recognition of the history of oppression and discrimination against tribes and peoples. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, the fundamental principle we don't treat uh, people differently on account of their race or ethnicity or ancestry, uh, equal justice under law. Uh, I don't think we would ever allow, um, as the court suggested in Palmore in 1984, Congress to say that white parents should get a preference for white children in adoption or that Latino parents should get a preference for Latino children in adoption proceedings. I don't think that would be permitted uh, under that principle of equal justice that we recognized in Palmore. So those are the two principles on equal protection that I think focus the inquiry. How do we draw the line? Well, Your Honor, I think first you look to Mankari itself, which took a first attempt at drawing this line. And as described in Rice and as applied from Mankari in the six cases that immediately followed, there were always at least two necessary preconditions, again describing Rice now. One, that the preference or the discriminatory rule or set aside always reached only, and this is in Rice, only members of a federally recognized Indian tribe, because that was the component that made it clear that you were dealing actually with the Indian tribe as a body and the people who constituted that body and not on the basis of race. And then second, Van Kari saw as significant that each of the preferences that it otherwise understood operated on or at least near an Indian reservation, because the political preference related to self-government, it analogized to a couple of things, to individuals who sought to serve in municipal government to be able to promote the efficient delivery of services, to the territorial requirements of serving an office in the United States Constitution. And so those are the two components Mankari looked at as vital. ICWA includes neither. It, it operates only off of tribal reservations. It does not require a child who will be subjected to ICWA to be a member of the tribe. And I think that puts this clearly on the invidious race discrimination side of that very tricky line that you're highlighting. Thank you. Justice Barrett. General Stone, I want to take you back to the active efforts provision. One response that the government has is that the state could just choose not, could walk away, essentially, and certainly private parties have the option to participate or not in termination of rights proceedings or seeking foster care placement. How would that work? Could Texas walk away, you know, if you had a child um, who was a member of a tribe 
and was in a situation um, in which the child was in danger or like the Brackeen's children here, like, you know, YRJ, could Texas choose, could the Texas agency choose not to intervene or seek a foster care placement for the child? First of all, as a matter of Texas substantive law, no. But putting that aside, even if Texas substantive law allowed that, it'd be very strange for the federal government to say, this isn't commandeering because you can always just stop. You just not do it altogether. When it's talking about a core police power, which is saying the health, itself, the health, safety, and welfare of vulnerable children. So I think the fact that that is the, the sort of component they're offering, aside from I have no idea how as a practical matter Texas could do that, the fact they're saying do it our way or else, I think is a, more in the nature of a confession than an explanation. Thank you. Justice Jackson? Yes. So um, in the Mankari case, we said, quote, the plenary power of Congress — to deal with the special problems of Indians is drawn both explicitly and implicitly from the Constitution itself. Do you agree with that proposition? No, Your Honor, because we believe that at least some components of the plenary power are wrong as an original matter, but we are not challenging them for purposes All right, of this so case. All right, so we assume — So we accept them, we, yes. You accept this. Okay. What, what I'm worried about is what if the special problem — of the Indians is the manner in which a state is handling custody determinations, is the manner in which placement determinations are being made, are these children being snatched from their homes, et cetera, et cetera, as a historical matter. I am not at all sure that anti-commandeering principles would prohibit the federal government, who has plenary power over solving special problems of Indians, to direct a state in light of uh, this power to do something about it. Justice Alito says they couldn't. Could they legislate? I don't know that I can see that they couldn't, given the plenary power. And I'm also worried about this, the sort of ahistorical gloss of this, because it seems to me that there is ample evidence historically that the design of the Constitution gave the federal government that very power at the expense of the states, that we had had a previous uh, a set of circumstances in which the federal government and the state government shared power Uh, related to Indian affairs, and that the Constitution came along and gave it to the federal government. So can you help me to understand, in light of all of those concerns, why we would have anti-commandeering principles at work to thwart the federal government from exercising the plenary authority that it's been given to deal with the special problems of Indians in this way? If you'll allow me to start with the historical materials, and then I'll turn back to essentially an argument from precedent, and then if there are any further questions, I'd be happy to to resolve them. First, just speaking about just sort of original materials, the original draft of what eventually became the Indian Commerce Clause was submitted by James Madison as a power to, I'm closely paraphrasing here, regulate Indian affairs within the U states. That was revised down by the Committee of Eleven to a narrower power to regulate Indian affairs, which was further revised down to a power to regulate Indian commerce. All right. So what about the Articles of Confederation? What what do we do about the uh, inferences that people, historians, have told us that what was happening with the shift from the uh, way in which the power was structured at that point to the Constitution was about 
making sure that the federal government had certain authority and that this was one of those areas? Again, on this two points, the first being Federalist 42, I think, holds part of the answer, which my friends on the other side rely on. Federalist 42 specifically cites the two limitations regarding what was then Article 9 of the Articles of Confederation, and then later when it describes how it's removed itself of, I think, these these embarrassments, it says, and then therefore this whole power will allow regulation of trade. It uses specifically the word trade to describe the power that has been unshackled by these two things. Not even commerce more broadly, but trade. So the idea that Federalist 42's understanding of the changes to, to Article 9 of the of the Articles of Confederation would have expanded to an, to an all-encompassing Indian affairs power, I think is just in the teeth of All that. All right, but in the arguments. actual Constitution, we have commerce, and we have historians that have said that at the time, commerce meant more than trade. It included intercourse. Justice Sotomayor has brought that up several times. So what do you say in response to that? The problem is here is the syllogism they're relying on, which is that commerce mean, can, can mean trade and intercourse. Intercourse can mean all relationships in between men and groups of men. Therefore, commerce means all relationships between groups of men. In Gibbons, in Story, in other original sources, intercourse is paired up with, specifically in Gibbons, with the word navigation, so as to describe what we now would refer to as the channels of commerce, the ability to set rules as to what foreign boats may dock in places. So intercourse doesn't get respondents the way to ICWA. It doesn't even get them beyond what we would ordinarily think of as the Commerce Clause now. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Needler. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As this Court recognized in Holyfield and Adoptive Couple, ICWA was enacted in response to serious harms caused by widespread child welfare practices that resulted in the separation of large numbers of Indian families, often unwarranted, through adoption or foster placement, usually in non-Indian homes. Over the more than 40 years since its enactment, ICWA has furnished vital protections against those practices and has become integrated in state child welfare practices. There is no basis for uprooting those practices or for overturning Congress's considered judgment in enacting ICWA. ICWA, in fact, is a valid exercise of Congress's power over Indian affairs in several respects. That power is grounded in the text of the Constitution, including the Indian Commerce Clause. It is grounded as well in the constitutional structure in which Indian tribes occupy a unique status as dependent sovereigns to which the United States owes a duty of protection. And that duty of protection, as this Court observed in Kagaba, derives in large measure from the fact that the national government and the states aiding it, acting through treaty and war powers, diminish the tribe's ability, put them in a position of dependency, and as this court said in Kagama, Sieber, and other cases, with, gave rise to a duty of protection, which in turn encompassed a power of protection. Congress's uh, efforts to address the problems in ICWA protecting family integrity, kinship unity, and the integrity and long-term existence of tribes lie at the core of Congress's power under the plenary powers. It does so by not by displacing state authority, but simply imposing minimum standards on states' exercise of that authority by seeing foster care and uh, adoption in, uh, in state courts. Uh, 
petitioner's plea to this court to set aside ICWA on its face would undermine those vital protections that have worked well, as the amicus brief by 23 states shows, since its enactment. It would also gravely undermine this court's Indian jurisprudence by carving up Congress's plenary power into discrete categories which this court has never recognized. And it would undermine the reliance of Congress, of tribes, of individual members, and here states on Congress's exercise of power. Well, Mr. Needler, if the plenary power uh, has no limits, then, of course, there isn't any Article I issue for us to decide. Does it really have no limits, in your view? No. um, Mankari um, announces the core of the test, which it has to be rationally related uh, to the fulfillment of Congress's unique obligations to Indians. So in in that, it, it is an implementation of the dependent status and the protection, whether that comes just from the Indian Commerce Clause or the uh, amalgamation of Congress's very various powers. Um, but it, it has to be in service of the obligations to the Indians. And this court uh, in Mankari said it has to be reasonable and rationally related uh, to Congress's uh, fulfillment of its unique powers. There is, I think, a reasonableness there, but this is at the core of something that is So ra- rationally related, is that our usual rational basis test? I think Congress's judgment whether, whether uh, it, it does serve that purpose is entitled to great deference. I think it may not go all the way to rational basis because I, I think it's important to recognize that Congress has acted over the two centuries since the adoption of the Constitution. In pragmatic ways, when it has been confronted with a particular problem, it has assessed that problem, it has come up with what it regards as the appropriate solution to that problem, and has acted uh, in, in a reasonable manner, and this court has said that uh, deference to Congress's judgment about what is reasonably essential to carry out the trust responsibility is called for. Could Congress but, say? No, no. Go ahead. Could Congress uh, go further than it has gone in ICWA and say that an Indian child may not be adopted by an un, by a non-Indian couple under any circumstances? I think that would. That would obviously go further, and, and I, I would want to know the, the, the circumstances, but I would think that would be a difficult law to defend. And that's written. not rationally related in the same way that this is? Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's more it, — it, I honestly don't — I've had this — have great difficulty dealing with this Article I uh, question, because if plenary means plenary, Congress can do whatever it wants, fine. As I said, it, it, it's an easy case. There's nothing there under Article I. But if there are limits, it's hard for me to see where the limits are. That's where I, that's where I need help. Well, I, 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 think, I think the place to start — frankly, I think it's difficult to, start, to state one rule that applies across the board in all the various circumstances where Congress might act. Criminal laws, uh, education and health care, as Justice Gorsuch mentioned, uh, child, uh, child welfare. Uh, but, but what this Court has said and, — and Again, I want to come back to this. Sieber was an example where it involved tax exemptions for property. But the court, the court in upholding that said these tax exemptions are appropriate uh, in aid of Congress's carrying out its obligations. What about the boarding school law? Congress had the power to do that? Congress, Congress had the power at the time, I, I, I think, 
Well, if it were to do it, if it were, yeah, okay. If it were to do it tomorrow, would that fall outside Congress's plenary power? Well, it has to be the the plenary power. I I think there are at least two two things to bear in mind about this. I think Congress, when dealing with a tribe in its political capacity, has a great deal of power to diminish the tribe's uh, or regulate the tribe's exercise of its governmental authority, like under the Indian Civil Rights Act, et cetera. That's, that's dealing with the tribes as tribes in a political capacity. I think where Congress is addressing the protections for individual Indians, either children, adults, whoever, then that, that's what triggers the formulation of the, uh, of the trust responsibility or the dependent status uh, of, of tribes. It has to be reasonably related to Congress's unique obligations, right. could Indians, Congress which means could, could, it has to be protective, not harming. Could, could Congress enact uh, a law that alters uh, the substantive law that states apply in areas like con- like uh, contracts or torts or rules of evidence when one of the parties in the case is an Indian? I think the mere fact that, that the party is an Indian uh, would probably not be sufficient. Why? If, Why isn't that rationally related to furthering the interests of, of Indians? I, I, again, I think, I think in examining any hypothetical statute or context, it is necessary to look at the judgment that Congress made and to know why Congress made the judgment that it did. In, in Indian contracts, for example, there were many, many years where con- Contracts by individual Indians were not valid unless approved uh, by the Secretary of the Interior because of a concern that they were going to be taken advantage of. So if there was, if, if there was that sort of justification, uh, and presumably, I don't think we can assume Congress would act in an arbitrary manner. It would be addressing a real-world problem in a practical way. No, I understand well, it. And, no, go ahead. Uh, just one, one more. Honestly, I, I don't know how to analyze this question because uh, – if plenary means everything, then, then it means everything. And otherwise, what I've gotten from the briefs and the arguments is that we have to try to extract certain rules from our cases, which quite honestly strike me as a mishmash. But one, one last one. Um, could Congress have required that Indians get preference in, the, in uh, receiving the COVID vaccines? Uh, Would that I, be an equal protection violation, in I, your view? Again, it, I, I think it might depend. Um, if Congress decided to furnish vaccines to tribes as part of a tribal health program, I don't know whether you would call that a preference or whether that's Congress del- aspect of Congress's delivering health care. It, it might have a disparate impact, if you will, but, but Congress has a duty to Indians, and, and it might buy a lot of vaccines and deliver them. But a prescription prescription to a state, for example, might be quite different. I I, I do want to follow up on Justice Alito's question. There's a limited number of vaccines. Can the federal government decide to distribute those to to Indians and not others? Well, it's a very simple hypothetical. Well, probably not, but but I I just want to caveat. So the plenary power doesn't include something like that? Well, uh, answering what, what plenary power means, I think several things that it means. There's no subject matter that is completely off limits. 
just be, just because it's Indians. There is no geographic uh, component which renders something completely. But there's limits. something about distributing vaccines uh, with a limited supply that is. You suggested, I guess, that it may not be within the plenary power. Well, in in a court's reviewing of something of uh, that Congress has done in the exercise of its plenary power, again, the, the test the court has applied, it's used different formulations. But is that uh, the re- reasonably essential? Re- reasonably essential, appropriate, what, what not arbitrary. What, what? I mean, if it's essential, if it's essential, if it's reasonable. But. What's reasonably well, essential? Well, reasonably essential is not a familiar term in, 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 in the in way. In English? Well, <laughs> but but in, in, in jurisprudence, but it, that's followed by deference has to be given uh, to Congress. And, and you know, if, if, the, if the furnishing of vaccines to the tribe was part of a, uh, a general program to furnish vaccines to underserved communities. No. I mean, it, it would. Depend. I guess this is the point. You're arguing for special treatment with respect to Indians. So why does it matter if it's part of a program to serve underprivileged uh, communities? It, 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 it may not, but I but I don't think Congress has not done the sort of thing that you are describing. But Congress Mr. Has, Mr. No, Needler, I thought that your answer to the chief was going to be that that issue was not really teeing up a question about the plenary power, that the issues that they have identified, I would think, would be analyzed under the Equal Protection Clause, and that's sort of a separate constitutional basis for... That that would be, although that also has a rational basis. uh, Well, but there are two questions. One, whether you can do it in the first place, which is the plenary power question, then whether you can do it in a way that distinguishes between uh, polities uh, uh, with which the federal government has a special trust relationship. I, I, I think uh, these two questions raise — it may all be under the plenary power. They raise an ends mean. There's no doubt that furnishing vaccines to uh, Indians, at least if they have some tribal connection or within the scope of people eligible for Indian health care services, there's no doubt that that is a valid mean or a valid end for Congress's action. The question would be whether the approach it took is a reasonable one, or rather it is arbitrary. And those, those require some, ju- some assessment of Congress's judgment to which — I have — I mentioned to Mr. McGill difficulty understanding how the placement priorities work. Um, so maybe I'll try an example. Let's say there's a six-month-old uh, baby that had been born to an Indian couple, and the Indian couple, for whatever reason, is no longer uh, no longer there. Um, and there are also no extended family members in, in the tribe. A non-Indian couple comes forward and says, we would like to adopt uh, the six-month-old old baby. And they check all the boxes of their, you know, best interests of the child. In other words, in normal circumstances, this would be a perfect placement uh, for the child. But non-family members of the tribe uh, say that, no, they think it would be better for the child, uh, child to be raised with the tribe on the reservation. Uh, does, does that priority trump the other best interests finding? Well, uh, several questions about that. When Congress enacted — sorry, an- answers. Uh, when Congress enacted uh, ICWA, it was very concerned about the application of the best interests of the child standard because it led to subjective judgments about by state. Okay, well, let's assume let's assume that it's a good faith and reasonable no. application of the best interest standard. But but what but what what Congress did was to um, adopt objective standards, which is. 
the, the child, which is the priorities. And with respect to uh, tribal members, there is, a, there is an extended kinship proposition there. So does a, that priority displace the state court, state adoption agency determination of the best interests of the child? Well, the, the, the agency would have to determine that the, that the tribal family was qualified, um, yeah. uh, first of all. Um, and then secondly, the, um, that placement, uh, it, it's a rebuttable presumption and is not absolute. So there is a good cause. Rebuttable tri- presumption that the child would be placed with the non-family members of right. the tribe. Right. That's one way to describe it. But then, there, yes. Uh, I mean, well, so, okay. So my point is that in that particular situation, the best interest of the child would be subordinated to the interests of the tribe. No, but, but the I, interest I, of non-family members. When Congress enacted ICWA in Section 1902, it said it was implementing the best interest of the child. The, 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 the proposition of best so interest. The, so you're saying Congress and ICWA made a determination that it is in the best interest of the child to remain with non-family members of the tribe on the reservation in every case, regardless of what the alternative is? Well, no, it's not every case. What Congress did was enact a a framework, an overall statute that, as I said, and and this is, uh, if if you look at the uh, amicus brief by the the Casey Foundation, it described that this reflects uh, child welfare practices that that have uh, come to more closely resemble what ICWA does, in fact, by uh, by looking to not just the immediate family, but to extended kin, Congress made judgments in, when it so enacted. So I guess I, and, and I am having trouble figuring out how this actually works in, okay. pra- in practice in a concrete case. Okay. In the hypothetical, hypothetical that I posed, uh, would the interests of non-family members of the tribe trump the state agency determination? They make these determinations every day of what's in the best interest of the child. Not with respect to placement with the other, uh, the, the other couple we're talking about. It's not they're, they're saying, you know, it's not going to be in the best interest of the child to be placed with the family on the reservation. But there are other things that they take into account. But ICWA does not operate that way with respect. The, the first question is that you, if, if there are no extended family members, an extended family can include how, how the tribe. No, no. My uh, hypothetical was it, members of no, the tribe. Right. So it goes to, it goes to the second preference for uh, a couple in, or parents in that tribe, but that is subject to the good cause exception. So okay, does the good cause exception, how does that work? Is it's not, it's something different than the best interests of the child? It, it's not articulated that way. Maybe some of the same considerations could come in. But again, co- Congress was, and for example, if the, parent, the, the uh, preference of the parents is given yeah, but, you know, again, my hypothetical said that the parents are no longer on the scene. But, okay, I mean, there, there are cases where there are. It happens. Yeah, no, it, no it, it does. But all I'm saying is that the, I'm giving examples of why the good cause exception is not absolute. It can be rebutted in certain ways. It also says should. It does not say shall or must, which allows for the consideration of other factors. Could it be rebutted by the agency saying we have gone through our normal determinations of what's in the best interest of the child that we do in every case, whether, you know, not involving uh, uh, Indians and we think that's where the child should be placed with that couple. Now, does the do the priorities in ICWA trump that determination? That, that, that is not the determination the, the agency would make at the outset. And again, 
because that's what ICWA was concerned about. And, uh, and because of the subjective judgments that could be made by child welfare personnel and looking at the family, looking at the, at the financial status of the family, looking at the housing, and make judgments that this child should not Mr. be there. Mr. Needler, can I — one can assume two, two things. Following up on Justice Alito and Justice Roberts' initial question, if the United States — had agreed with England to supply it first with the vaccine before it supplied the states. Would our foreign powers permit, plenary foreign powers permit the U.S. to do that? um, I think it probably would, yes. What stops that from happening, obviously, is that that president would obviously or more than likely not get reelected. All right? The same thing if there was a political judgment that the Indian tribes required the vaccine first. For some rational reason, 90% of the, of the population was dying or a huge number more or whatever the reason was, it was a reasonable reason, that would — you'd have plenary power to do that, correct, if you're the, the government? The, the, as I said, the power to furnish the vaccines is there, whether the, whether the criteria that it applied in a particular case, uh, I mean, they would have to be reasonable, but right. we shouldn't I'm assume Congress — On the best interest of the child point, okay? Um, going back to that, one is presuming that the best interest of the child is to remain with X or Y. That's with, a court — I'm sorry. With, to remain with X or Y meaning with a custodian or not. But it doesn't mean a child is going to be placed with an unfit parent, correct? Right. An unfit. All of these parents, to even be in the running, have to be competent parents, correct? Competent care custodians. So now the issue is one of policy. Where will you place the child among these competing competent custodians, correct? Yes. And that goes to the judgment of who should make that judgment and what you're saying is Congress has — Congress made that judgment in particular because it was concerned about the ordinary operation of the — and this Court's decision in Smith versus uh, Organization of Families makes this point. So there's — so just so I understand, there's a level — Could you let him just finish that, Chief? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, just let him finish that. Go ahead. Congress, Congress was concerned about the sort of free-form or free-floating application of the best interests of the, of the child standard, uh, and, and as this Court recognized, and that's why uh, it, it, for example, imposed a burden of proof to remove, uh, to remove the child or for, or for uh, placements of the child with, with someone else. And what it determined is the arrangement that — the framework that it set up in ICWA was in the best interest of the child because Congress made a judgment that placing the child with the extended family, failing that with the tribe, which is, an, which is a kinship community interest, which is, which is taken into account in the non-Indian context under child welfare practices. That was in the best interest of the child with the, with the occasion or the possibility or the prospect of individualized exceptions to that Suppose the in a particular case. Well, I think <laughs> — Chief, are, are you finished with your answer? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, because I — yeah. Now, uh, is, is competence the threshold or in this priority standard, uh, is the agency allowed to consider uh, the relative best interests of 
the two different proposed placements? I, I, I think ordinarily not. But, but as this Court has said elsewhere, for example, in, in removing a child from its parents, the question is not whether the child would be better off somewhere else because parents have a, a fundamental right in parenting their children. And what Congress didn't say this was a fundamental right of extended family or tribes, but it, it thought it was a very important right that should be recognized and not lightly and not lightly taken away because of the, uh, the, the huge numbers of Indian children who are being taken away from their families, from their extended families, from their tribes, from their kin, from their community. And that was damaging the long-term interests last, of the tribes. Last question. Um, uh, is the trust relationship, trust responsibility that the federal government uh, owes in this area, is that responsibility owed to the tribe or is it owed to individual members of the tribe? I think Congress can conclude that it is owed to both, and it traditionally has. Uh, Congress's power and, — and the Holiday decision that was referred to uh, previously, I think, is very instructive on this point in a number of uh, uh, reasons. Uh, it involved — it upheld Congress's ability to engage in the prohibition on, on liquor sales in that case off-reservation, it rejected the proposition that just because the Indians there were citizens, that that was beyond what uh, what uh, Congress could do, and it and it said that that could be upheld because it was an appropriate exercise of of uh, Congress's power. But it also specifically rejected the argument that the, that Congress can only deal with tribes. It said tribes are made up of their members, of their constituents. And that's an important thing to understand about the way ICWA operates. It operates on the basis of citizenship. That uh, The definition of Indian child is that the child must be a member of the tribe, or if not, it has to, the, the child has to be eligible for well, along those membership. Lines, along those lines, Mr. Needler, um, <clears throat> suppose the parents of a child uh, that is uh, going to be adopted say, we don't want our child treated as an Indian under ICWA. And the tribe says, well, uh, this child is eligible for tribal membership. Or maybe we have enrolled, we have unilaterally enrolled the child as a member of the tribe. What happens then? Well, if the um, I'm, I'm not sure. It would, uh, of all the facts in the hypothetical, if if the parents are giving the child up for adoption, then that wouldn't uh, necessarily trigger the, um, uh, the the preferences, or they wouldn't get dispositive weight because the, the parents' uh, uh, desires can be given great weight in that in that circumstance. So, if, but if it would still be it would still be governed by ICWA. It's still it's still subject to equity, yes. But but the but and this is an important point to understand. This is a facial challenge to a statute that has operated for forty years, day to day in state child welfare agencies. It's integrated in what they do, and you know there there could be. Uh, I mean, what happens in a particular case depends upon the the state agencies or the private agencies or the or the adopting. Can I couples follow up on the chief's questions? Um, the third preference for other Indian families, including families who are of a different tribe, correct? Yes. Okay. And does the third preference, that preference, ever make a difference? Um, I mean, I don't know empirically, but they, but it, it can in the following circumstances. I mean, first of all, it's important to understand. Meaning that the decision would have been to give it the best interest would have been with a, a different 
uh, family but for that third preference? Well, Does it ever make a difference? It, it very well could, but there would be very right. strong reasons why it would if I could just explain. No, I, I think it would. That's Yeah, yeah because, because that's, you, you could have a child, for example, who has uh, parents who are members of two tribes. Equicon- no, it just it applies beyond that sort no, of no, no, I know, but I'm explaining the reasons why it, yeah. why it is there. Again, this is a — first of all, it hasn't — the third uh, preference has not been raised in this case at all. Nobody — no plaintiff in this case has been affected by it. Um, and but, — but I was trying to give an explanation for why it is there and why applications of it would — would I think uh, be obviously okay if you have a, a child who has a parent who's a member of two tribes? ICWA requires that one be selected as the primary tribe, but but uh, if if that if for some reason uh, there's not a, a suitable uh, foster or adoptive parent who comes forward, the second tribe would be a logical place. You also have situations where two tribes share the same reservation. Uh, and, and there's a lot of interaction, intercourse between them. Or you have a situation where, and this is true with the breakup of the Great Sioux Nation in the Northern Plains, you once had one, one great nation that is now divided up into discrete tribes on different reservations, but they have common cultural... So, uh, so to get to the heart of my concern about this, uh, you would agree, I think, but tell me if you disagree, that Congress couldn't give a preference for white families for white children for black families, for black children, for Latino families, for Latino children, for Asian families, for Asian children. Yes. Do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. That, that's purely uh, based on race. But this is... And, and this is different and because, and I'll let you explain. Because it has to do with Indian tribes. Indi- including the third preference, which does not require it be of the same tribe? But it, but it, it is a tribe. It is a tribe with a political relationship to, uh, to the United States. If the child goes there, that the the child's uh, somebody in that in that family will be a tri- a member of that tribe. Well, why? I don't understand that. I thought that it swept more broadly than that, as Justice Kavanaugh was saying. I thought that you could have. I mean, even in your hypothetical, where you have a mother who belongs to one tribe and a father who belongs to another, maybe I'm misunderstanding how the third preference works. But I thought the third preference would kick in and give preference to someone who — a couple that belonged to a different tribe altogether. Am well, I misunderstanding it, it, that? It could, but ICWA operates on the basis of, of the child's primary tri- uh, tribe. And if — and — but if you had a second tribe, that would not — that wouldn't come under the first or second preference. It would come under the third. Would co- so would I'm come saying if the there's third. no — there's — right. I'm saying — I'm assuming, as Justice Kavanaugh's question was was assuming, that you get down to the third. So you didn't have a placement available. The first or the second preference didn't kick in. You get down to the third preference. And I guess — I mean, I'll get to the heart of my concern is — you know, if, if you're thinking about that from an equal protection point of view, I mean, let's assume I agree with you that these are political classifications. This is just treating Indian tribes as fungible. So well, let's imagine the child is a member of the Navajo and is placed under the third preference with a, the Cherokee. I don't, I don't think it rests on the idea that all, that all tribes are fungible in the sense that they're all the same or that all their members are the same, but what it does rest on is a recognition that each of those tribes has a political government-to-government relationship with the United States. And they have that in common. They, tribes, tribes have aligned over the years in common interests. They have 
and Congress certainly thought this was true, some common cultural um, uh, ties or practices or spiritual practices. They, they may not be dispositive, but the, it's a recognition that that could be true. The, the third preference doesn't come up. Uh, in, in fact, um, the petitioners in this case have not identified any case th- that fits the paradigm that, that, that I, I think Justice Kavanaugh might have been talking about, where you have somebody, a, another tribe with no other sort of connection to the child. A tribe is not just going to arbitrarily reach out and grab a, grab a child. They will do it because they have some interest. And it's not a property interest. Governments have an interest in their citizens and their children. Consular protection for aliens from other countries in our, in our country is a, is a vital thing. It's not property. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Alito, anything further? Well, um, adults can uh, change their, uh, their country of uh, their citizenship. Um, but why isn't Mr. McGill right in referring to uh, the concept that the tribes have uh, a proprietary interest in children who were covered by, by ICWA? The, the children don't voluntarily join the tribe. And in my hypothetical, where the the parents <clears throat> don't want the child to be treated <clears throat> as a member, of the chi- a member of the tribe, this child is treated as an Indian under ICWA solely based on uh, the child's uh, status as a — based on ancestry. Well — uh, if the child if the child is a member, that is because either the tribe automatically confers citizenship at birth, which the United States does for uh, in some circumstances for a U.S. citizen abroad if they give birth. It is not an unheard of proposition. And the parallels between Congress's dealing with tribes and Congress's dealing with foreign countries and foreign affairs is is very direct for these purposes. It's dealing with another sovereign. In fact, that parallel is present in the Indian Commerce Clause, which which is written in terms of commerce with foreign governments and with states. So there's, there, is, there is that parallel. And it's also common where if the, if the parents once enrolled the child but didn't want him to be um, uh, treated uh, as a tribal member, children follow — children don't make their own decisions. Someone else does. Either citizenship could descend automatically at birth, or, or when the child becomes 18, the child might choose to be a, a member, which is another important consideration if the child is placed what with, the, tr- with somebody child, in the tribe. Not 18, but an older child who can express the child's preferences, and the child says, I don't want to be treated as an Indian under ICWA. The good cause uh, uh, interiors regulations uh, explicating the good cause exception say that the uh, wishes of the, of the child if a, of a sufficient age uh, to, uh, for his preferences to be taken into account, that is a factor and, and perhaps a very important one. Uh, it's but, taken into account, but it's not dispositive. No, but, but family law cases, custody cases, are very fact-specific. And so 
you could hypothesize a situation in which maybe it should have been uh, dispositive, but not. But so, some a state court judge has to make a difficult judgment. Um, and, and if there are problems with that in a particular case, the, the person seeking custody could appeal. Uh, that was done in, in one of the cases in this case. But this is a facial challenge, the idea that, that in all of its operations under Salerno, it would be necessary to say in all of its operations, it either exceeds Congress's Article I powers or is a violation of equal protection. And I think that that is an untenable position. The statute has been operating for 40 years, uh, and we have 23 states who say it is working well. We have Numerous tribes saying it's critical to tribal preservation, and co- that Congress's judgment 40 years ago remains sound. One, one last question. Um, does, is rational basis the standard for all classifications that treat Indians differently from other people, even if, even if the classification disfavors them? Um, I, I think ordinarily the first question there would be whether that is a, a valid Article One exercise of power. If that's what you're asking, you were asking equal protection. Yeah, an equal protection. I, well, I, what's the what's the level of scrutiny for a classification that disfavors Indians? Well, as I said basis? before, if if what Congress does <clears throat> is uh, act on the tribe in a political manner, saying you you know your 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 powers are diminished or expanded, that's a political classification, and Congress can do things that tribes might think are, are not worthy. But if Congress is acting on individual members of tribes in a way that is harmful to them, I don't think that that is rationally related to the fulfillment of Congress's obligations to the tribes. That's, that, that, that's, a, that's a, 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 I think, an important marker that what Congress is doing has to be uh, reasonably understood as promoting the welfare of the, the individuals involved. And I think that's an important limitation. If, if the boarding school example were going to arise now, that would be a very serious question. Uh, maybe 100 years ago, people had a different idea of that. But, but now it is, I think, uniformly thought to have been harmful. And Congress cannot gratuitously do harmful things to individual, uh, individual tribal members, just like it, it can't to anyone else. This court's decision in Moreno with respect to equal protection, uh, equal protection challenge to a statute that that the court thought was just outright Well, that sounds dislike. like something – I'll stop with this. That sounds like a level of scrutiny that is different from ordinary rational basis review. And at least something with – at least something more than ordinary rational basis well, it, it, ought to be applied. With, and with the, so is it – does that apply either way or only uh, to uh, classifications – that uh, disfavor Indians? Again, I think it comes up both with respect to Article I, is it rationally related to Congress's fulfillment of its power, and then uh, a rational basis test for equal protection, and they overlap, and one could think of the issues here. But under, under the Article I power, I think it, 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 it doesn't cut both ways. Okay. I think Congress has to, has to be Mr. acting Needham, in favor Needham. of tribes. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, anything further? What you were trying to say, but I'm not sure, is um, ICA has two components. One, if you're a child who's an Indian member, and we haven't even addressed that, um, it seems to me that that's the quintessential um, uh, part of ICA that I find hard to overturn. If you're a member of a tribe and the government wants to protect you in a certain way, you should be 
the government should be unfettered. Right. I, I thought that might have been one, one part of Justice Alito's question, but, right. I, but I wasn't but sure. But the second part of ICTA um, subjects a child who's not a member yet, but whose parent is an Indian tribe membership. And that one, it seems to me that most of our laws presume that a child will follow its parents, correct? Yes. Until they're of age. Yes. Even with citizenship. Um, children who are born of parents abroad, I don't think in all circumstances are automatically considered citizens. No, it depends on the parent's connection to them. But they can travel to the U.S. They can, there's all sorts of benefits they're given because they're children of American citizens, but they have to declare their intent to be a citizen at 18 or something, correct? And, and the, um, this court's decision in Holyfield, um, you know, I think reinforces that. that so the bottom was- line is that ICA says that if you're eligible to be a member because you're born of an Indian parent, is no different than any of those laws, correct? Right. No, I, I think it's dis- citizenship passing by descent is a, is a uh, is common has been common throughout our history, um, and uh, and but here it's important to recognize that tribal membership, tribal citizenship, is defined by the tribe. Correct. That's an important that's an important aspect of tribal sovereignty. The United States is not defining uh, the membership, and that is part and parcel of recognizing the sovereignty of. Indian nations, which, by the way, are not, by the way, centrally mentioned in the Constitution, Indian tribes. It it, it defines them by being Indians. Thank you. Justice Kagan? Mr. Nitar, I'm I'm wondering if you could comment on the um, uh, various ramifications of adopting some of petitioners' theories of the Article I power, and we've heard a few different iterations, but I'll take um, General Stone's, perhaps, as the clearest cut one. Um, General Stone says Congress has power where it, um, where it is acting um, out of a particular treaty and its obligations, where it's regulating on tribal lands, or where it's regulating tribal governments qua governments. And those are the three areas in which Congress has power and everything else is outside of Congress's power. And um, I'm just wondering what in Article uh, – uh, in 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 um, you know, Title Twenty Five, would uh, that exclude? Well, uh, the Indian health care uh, program furnishes a lot of services to Indians who, some of whom are not actually formal tri- tribal members, but they are. Uh, the, a judgment's been made that they are sufficiently af- affiliated with a state tribe or something like that. There's a, a lot of the Indian health service. Uh, uh, care is furnished off reservation. There are there's aid to schools that uh, uh, Indian children um, attend. Uh, there, um, but there would there would also be um, other concerns historically and what Congress has done in the past. Uh, by but and I mentioned the Holiday case, which was created criminal. Uh, offenses for conduct occurring off a reservation by individual Indians. And there the court said it's not just commerce, it's intercourse, which means interaction between uh, Indians and non-Indians. So any time there could be abuses arising in the context of interaction between uh, Indians and non-Indians, the potential is there. It's, it's not necessarily going to be uh, all the time, but it's very important in not to cut off Congress's ability to make context-specific judgments when a practical problem um, uh, arises. And I think 
if the if the import of your question is that if something is behind is uh, doesn't fall into one of those categories precisely uh, first of all there'd be litigation about whether it does fall into that category but if that means uh, Congress is about to step into strict scrutiny land under racial discrimination, that would be, I, I, I think, an enormous... Or not just the, I, I took uh, General Stone to be saying Congress just can't do it. It just doesn't fall within Congress's yes, no, Article I powers. Right, you know? right, right. But, I mean, so there are two aspects to that. If it's beyond the powers, is it, is it racial discrimination? But I think, I think that would be, I mean, that is essentially the shackling of, of the federal government's powers under the Indian Commerce Clause or its more general uh, powers of protection coming about from the exercise of the war uh, and treaty powers that that would be in the teeth of of Congress the framers shedding of those shackles whether those shackles were all under the Indian Commerce Clause or or elsewhere that that was a deliberate choice by the framers to give Congress plenary power over Indian affairs that was reflected in the contemporary understanding and the Trade and Intercourse Act which enacted criminal penalties for crimes over the years, crimes by Indians against Indians, the classic intercourse or interaction between uh, Indians and non-Indians. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, On your point that this is a political classification, not a racial classification, including the third preference, uh, as I think you said, you're relying on Mankari. And I just want to understand what you see as the limits of Moncari and a couple of the hypotheticals I asked earlier. Uh, could Congress grant a hiring preference uh, to American Indians for federal agencies other than the BIA, such as Treasury or Justice? Or I, I think that would be much more difficult as I stand and, here. And why is that? Be, because uh, the preference in Moncari was at the BIA. It was the agency that was regulating um, uh, tribal affairs, individual Indian affairs. So there was a particular, particularly close nexus, frankly, to, uh, to the Indian tribe and, and tribal members who were going to work for it. So I, I think, I think uh, other than it arose in an unusual situation where it was a preference in, in federal employment, it was very closely related uh, to the tribe. But I think if you, if you get away from that, I, it would be much more difficult to defend. If, How about if, a... Um Congress decides for the um, to help the tribes and uh, tribal members that it's going to mandate that states give a preference in college admissions to American Indians. Um, Again, I think that would be that would be much more difficult to defend. I, I'm not sure what the defense and, and why though. I just want to understand what, you, you've had an instinct to both these questions. That's much more difficult. But why? I, I think it's because the the relationship to the tribal relationship to the tribal relationship is, uh, is more attenuated and bumps up against interests that other people might have. I think that, that may be uh, an important consideration. But contrast that perhaps to I mean, Congress has lo- long furnished um, funds to educate Indians. Uh, in fact, some colleges and universities have, have had that as part of their mission for years, for 200 then, um, years. That might present different questions. Okay. And then uh, you've, you've suggested that everything's been operating smoothly. You know, we leave well enough alone. But I just want you to speak to the concern on the other side, which is you, know, you come in as an adoptive couple. You want to adopt a child. The state court otherwise would say the best interest of the child would be to go with you. And then you're told, no, you're the wrong race. No, I mean, with respect, what you're told is 
if, if it's one of the preferences, that there is a tribal political citizenship uh, aspect to the, to the determination. And it, it rests even, on — Even with the third preference? Yes. Be, the, it, it, has, it has to be a member of, a, of another tribe. It has to, and that, that means that there, that political, that's a political relationship as well. Now, whether, whether there could be a rational basis challenge to that in a particular case, we don't have anything like that here. Uh, and and the, the, I think the core and, of and the third the th- preference is where, is where that tribe, either it occupies the same reservation or it has another parent. Well, you say the, the core, but it can apply even when it's a completely different tribe with none of that, correct? Right. But, but if, but is, it, that, is that a yes? It's possible. But, I mean, yes, it, yes, you would have to look at it, but yeah. the good cause exception might al- allow greater flexibility. And I think, you referred, is, I think you referred earlier to common spiritual practices that may exist in those circumstances. Does that suggest that Congress could say that, you know, Catholic parents should get a preference? No, no, not, not at all. And why not? not? At all. Why no, no. I, you, you said spiritual practice. Yes, I, and yeah. all I meant to say by that was Congress made a judgment that there are common cultural characteristics uh, 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 among tribes, or it, it, had that, it had that judgment, or at least that the preferences it set up allow for taking that into account because it's extended family, it's extended kin, <coughs> another tribe with cultural similarities. And so I, uh, tribal members, I mean, it varies. Not, obviously, not all members are alike, but some, peop- some tribal members feel a very strong affinity for their tribe in terms of their heritage going back to the, before the founding of this country. It's an important part of their cultural stability, their kinship, uh, and, and stability uh, uh, in growing up. And if you yeah, have a young uh, you child... Have, you have strong interests, and I respect those. On one side, I'm just trying to say there, there are strong interests on the other side, too, which is why the case is hard, but I'll finish there. Thank you. Mr. Needler, I want to pick up where Justice Kavanaugh left off. Um, you, you said that it would be a harder case in some of the hypotheticals that Justice Kavanaugh presented, say, you know, Treasury instead of the BIA, a, a preference in employment. Is that because you would say, you know, I I think that the classifications for Indians are difficult because it's difficult. There's a racial component and the political identity component. Are you struggling with those hypotheticals? Or Sorry, I don't mean to say struggling. Are you finding those more difficult to answer because you would say that there are some circumstances in which the classification of Indian operates more like a racial classification because it is unconnected to tribal sovereignty? For the BIA, for example, you know, you can see the connection between the classification and tribal sovereignty, and so it's easier to say that that's a political classification subject to rational basis scrutiny. If you move farther away from that, if you're talking about Treasury, then would you say that it operates as a as a political classification but doesn't satisfy rational basis scrutiny, or would you say it's a racial classification and fails strict scrutiny? I, um, you could think about it either way. I think it's still a, I, I think it's still a political classification, but but uh, perhaps an unreasonable one because there 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 is as the court's cases that have looked at this, Holiday and others, there, there is I think at some point a proportionality aspect to it uh, would would. Uh, uh, other people in the society be be greatly adversely affected or something something like that, but on the equal protection side, I think Adirond is a very good example of that because there was a a preference for contracting within a series of black asian you know other minority groups that w- it was expressed 
in racial terms, and the court said that was subject to strict scrutiny. But that's, that's why it's important to look at the context in which Congress is acting, and because Congress, Congress doesn't make sweeping judgments in this area. It looks but, like but just, to, just to clarify to make sure I understand your position, sometimes the classification can operate as racial and sometimes it would be political. Depending on the context in which Congress is I, I, I think if it's ex- expressly based on tribal citizenship here, either of the child or the parent where the child is not. I'm not I, talking about ICWA. I'm, no, no, I'm I know. About but some but what, I, what I'm saying, if it, if it turns on tribal membership or, or, or tribal citizenship, then I think it is uh, political uh, in, 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 its, in its essence, whether it goes too far in giving a benefit to a, a, uh, a, someone with that political connection, I okay. think would be the first the first way to look at it. Otherwise, there, there could be uh, well, I'll, scrutiny I'll, I'll challenges to, to many yeah, things. I'll move on. I mean, it just seems to me that it's always going to be tied to tribal membership in some way. But I'll, I'll move on. Just very quickly, I'm going to summarize what I understand you to be saying about the Article One issue. And I just want you to tell me if, if I've got it right or correct me if I don't. In response to um, Justice Alito's questions in particular and some of Justice Kagan's questions as well, um, you were saying plenary is plenary. So you would say that Congress's power to regulate Indian affairs is plenary, so as long as it's rational or reasonably related or whatever standard we want to use, it's within Congress's power, and the only limitation is if it bumps up against some external limit, like the Equal Protection Clause or like sovereign immunity, no, I, I, I think there are. I think there are built-in restraints. If it, if it, if the, if what it's doing is disproportionate, perhaps. I mean, it's it's hard to articulate this because this court has never struck down a statute uh, of that sort. And with respect to the Adirond case, there's no express. Uh, there was no express reference or supposition about tribal membership there, and so it was easy to identify it as. Okay, but 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 on my Article One question. No, uh, on the on the Article One question, I think. Plenary at its core means there are no, no subject matters, geographic areas, categorically beyond its power. But external limits from the Constitution would apply, like equal protection or in Seminole Tribe, state sovereign immunity. Yes, okay. uh, they, uh, they, would, they would apply. And this, I just want to reiterate, this doesn't just come from the, um, in, uh, the Indian Commerce Clause. There right. is the inherent power that comes from Congress's Trust the federal government's which in turn comes from constitutional powers like the war power and, and all of that that renders the tribes dependent and therefore in need of protection. And so I think it's very hard for this court to lay down a standard rule about what's necessary to protect the tribes and to fulfill the obligation to the Indians. Justice Jackson? Yes, so I, I agree um, to some extent with Justice Kavanaugh that there are strong interests on both sides of these issues. What I'm mostly concerned about is that we might be taking it upon ourselves to weigh those interests, where really our role should be thinking about what the framers intended with respect to the scope of Congress's authority as it regards Indian affairs and what Congress believed was necessary to protect uh, Indians given that exercise of authority. So I guess I'm, that makes me wonder whether we shouldn't be giving more weight to the statements in the legislative history from Congress uh, in terms of its um, decision that 
ICWA and its provisions were, in fact, related to tribal sovereignty, necessary to preserve tribal sovereignty. So let me just ask you, how much weight, if any, should we be giving to clear, direct statements from Congress that this was being done pursuant to its understanding of its plenary authority as given it given to it in the Constitution, and that it was necessary uh, from Congress's perspective to solve for the problem of these state welfare practices that were causing harm to Indian children, uh, given its responsibility as a trust uh, relationship for Indian affairs? I think very, very great deference, and I think that is the message of cases like Holiday and Perrin and cases like that. And you don't have to look to legislative history for that. It's set out in the it's set out in the in the beginning of ICWA itself. Uh, it starts by saying Clause Three of Article One provides that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with Indians, and through this and other authority, it has plenary power. Congress is saying that through statutes, treaties, etc. And, it, and the course of dealing with tribes, it has assumed the, assumed the responsibility for the protection of Indians. Those are in 1901. 1902 says the Congress hereby declares that it is the policy of this nation to protect the best interests of Indian children by establishing minimum standards in state uh, child welfare proceedings, because that was the problem they were addressing. Yes, the boarding school issue was also out there, but Congress saw, and again, in the considered focused way that it deals with problems, it saw a major problem. It thought that this was in the best interest, that the standards and the protections and the framework it set out were in the best interest uh, of the child. And if that displaces ordinary um, child welfare law in particular cases, Congress made a judgment that the objective factors it set out, which take into account extended family and kinship principles that family law has, but the way this statute implements them in state proceedings is in the best interest of Indian children. And that judgment by Congress, based on extensive hearings, is entitled to great deference. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Gershengorn? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Congress enacted ICWA because Indian children were being torn from their families and tribes through the operation of state family law in state courts. I want to emphasize three points at the start. First, there is no — Congress has plenary power over Indians, and there is no exception in that power for state court child custody proceedings. Since the founding, the health and safety of Indian children has been the province of the federal government and tribes, not the states. And indeed, when Congress attempted to give states authority over Indian children in the 20th century, states resisted and said it was an exclusive federal responsibility. Second, plaintiffs' equal protection claims should be rejected. A facial challenge in a case without standing is just about the worst way to consider the constitutionality of a major federal statute. And in any event, ICWA draws distinctions that are political three times over. It applies only to tribes that the federal government has recognized. It incorporates membership criteria established by sovereign tribes, and it relies on the political decisions of parents to remain tribal members. Third, ICWA protects the best interests of children. It adopts a system of structured decision-making that combines evidence-based presumptions with flexibility to make individualized determinations. It protects child safety, facilitates access to critical remedial services to keep families intact, and it 
keeps, works to keep, family, keep children with their families and communities. That's why ICWA is viewed as the gold standard. I'd be happy to take the Court's questions. If not, I will start with, with the uh, — take the Court's <laughs> But not I'm also that, happy not, to keep going. <laughs> not that easy. Um, do you think that ICWA incorporates the familiar best interests of the child inquiry that are, are applied in — family courts uh, throughout the country? So I think I'd have to say the answer to that is no. What ICWA does is modify that because Congress made the judgment that the best interest standard was being implied in a way that resulted in unwarranted removals. What Congress did was create a system it thought was in the best interest of the child, but not by adopting the, quote, state best interest of the child standard because it found that that was being applied in a discriminatory way. Now, so, Your Honor, there's been a lot of back and forth about good cause, and it seems like good cause is important in the statute. I will say candidly, having looked at the cases, there are three — the state courts are in a little bit of disarray as to whether the preferences are sort of binding, whether there's a straight free-floating best interest standard that — sort of that, — that works um, through good cause, or whether, as I think is probably the way Congress intended it, that there's a — the placements are the default setting, and good cause provides a, a way to rebut the presumption. Now, Interior has, has explained how good cause works. It involves — you can take into account the decisions of the, the views of the parents, the views of the child, if the child uh, is old enough to express them. You can take into account sibling attachment. You can take into account bonding with foster parents as long as it was not done illegally through ICWA. The thing you cannot take into account is socioeconomic status. So what the Casey brief and others say and what the reason why medical professionals are here, states are here, family rights uh, advocates are here, is because ICWA is the gold standard. It adopts that those evidence-based presumptions and allows for flexibility to protect the best interests of the child. Um, so with respect to sort of the power debate, which has been going on, I want to make a couple of points. Um, first, this is at the core of the plenary power doctrine. From the beginning, the, um, the plenary power doctrine was used to protect Indians from non-Indians. There is no doubt that if states had moved in and done a wholesale physical removal of Indian children, that would have been within the duty of protection. The fact that this is being done through state courts, through state family law, doesn't deprive Congress of power. Justice Barrett, you were asking about limits. Obviously, when we're talking about plenary power, limits are hard to find, but I will say this Court has identified some. What I would say is when Congress acts directly on Indians, the limits on plenary power, as opposed to the other provisions, are hard to find. But what Congress said in Perrin was that when Congress acts on non-Indians to protect Indians, then there may be limits. And in that case, it was the question of banning alcohol sales outside of reservations. And what Congress said, what the Court said, was that if you're doing it in counties where there are a lot of Indians, probably okay. okay. If you're doing it statewide, when Indians are concentrated in a, a, a number of counties, not okay. And so that's a limit that this Court has identified. The limit that does not exist is the one that's tied to land. I've already addressed the limit for um, state custody proceedings, which, you know, it, Congress has acted for servicemen to say deployment is not something you can take into — it cannot be dispositive in a best interest finding. Like, Congress has acted pursuant to other federal powers to do exactly what it did in ICWA. Um, 
the, the rule that makes no sense is land. Why does it make no sense? From the beginning, Congress has, uh, from, the 17th, from the Trade and Intercourse Act forward, Congress has legislated off-reservation. It, ha- it prohibited in the 1834 Act in Section uh, 15 alienating the confidence of Indians. In the earlier acts, it, um, it required non-Indians to report Indian invasions to the federal government. It prohibited land sales by Indians on and off the reservation. In the liquor sale context, what this court said in McGowan was Congress has the authority to legislate wherever Indians may be. And holiday, 43 gallons, Perrin, all those cases are off reservation. In the treaty cases, this court has seen in uh, fishing vessel, in Cougar Den, Right? Those were off-reservation. Um, and then Indian um, Health Care Improvement Act, the Indian Housing, uh, Native American Housing Assistance Program, the Indian Education Program, all of those are off-reservation. Why does land make no sense? Land makes no sense because in the Articles of Confederation, there was a land carve-out. And it was exactly the kind of reason that we had the change in the Constitution to prevent that. Why does land make no sense? There are landless tribes right? There are landless tribes in California and Montana. Land is just not a sensible way to divide and limit congressional power. There were several questions. There were several questions earlier about the justification for granting preference for foster or adoptive parents who are members of an entirely different tribe. Uh, Could you speak to that? Certainly, Your Honor. Is that based on, on, on the assumption that um, all tribes are fungible no, or sufficiently similar to justify that? No, what right. is it based on? It is based on the view that, that, that all, federally recognized, all federally recognized tribes and members of those tribes share a common political relationship with the United States. That's what renders it political rather than racial. Every member of a federally recognized tribe shares that political relationship. Now, that then begs the question that a number of the justices have focused on about, is it rational? That's a fair question, and that's a fair debate. Let me explain why I think it clearly is rational. And some of this uh, Mr. Needler touched on, and I agree with. It has a clearly — remember, we're talking about a, 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 prefer, a, a prong that was never applied to any of the — um, of the plaintiffs here, and on a facial challenge, right? All, I, all it has to have is a plainly legitimate scope, which it does. In Alaska, for example, it is quite common for Indian me- members of one tribe to live on the reservation of another. The preference applies quite often there, right? What the, what your court, what the court has been worrying about is this kind of Maine to Arizona hypo, right, that we identify some tribe in Maine that's going to somehow get a preference. Well, that case has never happened, a- that, that we've been able to find an able counsel on the other side is being able to find. And I would submit on a facial challenge in a situation where it's never applied, that would be very odd to strike down a congressional statute. I will say, though, that I, for the reasons I've said, I think it's, it is actually quite rational. If the court disagreed, it's also clearly severable. If I, give a, if I say I would like you know, Italian food, Chinese food, and any steak joint, and it turns out there's a vegan in the group that I can't do the steak joint, the first two preferences remain, okay? There's well, wh- no why is it rational? I understand that uh, it's a facial challenge, but wh- why, why is it rational? It, uh, before the arrival of Europeans, uh, the tribes were at war with each other often, and they were separated by an entire continent. And I, uh, I don't know how many 
cultural similarities you would identify if you compared uh, a tribe in Florida with a tribe in Alaska. So, Your Honor, I think it's been pretty clear. I'm not basing this on cultural similarity. I'm basing it on a political relationship with the United States that all the tribes share. Now, I take Your Honor's point. If we had a case, and this is why you wait for, um, for actual uh, for actual as-applied challenges as opposed to facial challenges. If we had a case where a family was denied because a tribe in Maine with no ties to the child was given preference over a, a, a Cherokee or a Navajo Indian, we would be talking about a pretty serious, uh, a pretty serious as-applied challenge. But of course, we're, we're a million miles from that. We're the exact opposite. What you're hearing and what, the, what is actually happening on the ground is this is used in situations which are quite unremarkable. As I say, when a member of one tribe is living on the reservation of another has built exactly the kind of community that ICWA is hoping to preserve. So, you know, from, from my perspective, I certainly am not here to defend the, the, what I'll call the Maine to Arizona hypo. But I, what I am here to say is it has a plainly legitimate sweep. It is political, not racial, and that, that, it, that um, even if your honors disagree with that, it's also plainly severable. Counsel, um, on the political and racial uh, point, I'd like to return to the uh, dialogue between uh, Justice Barrett and Mr. Needler, which, if I understand it, uh, raised the question, because there are several hypotheticals where Mr. Needler, uh, I think, properly recognized that that would present a harder case. Um, and I think the suggestion was, well, is it a harder case because the racial aspect of what is a combined, in most cases anyway, combined polity and uh, uh, blood characterization, uh, in that case that the racial aspect predominates in some particular way. Right. That seemed to resonate with you? No, Your Honor. You'd be perhaps unsurprised. To, no. The way I would view it is, and this was, I think, one of the ways Justice Barrett framed it, which is how I think about it, which is that's a political characterization. If we're basing, if, if Congress is making a judgment on federally recognized tribes, remember that's excluding people who have left the tribe. That's excluding state recognized tribes. So your that's answer, but, I'm, I'm but just, could I finish? Because I, I want to respond directly to your question. I'm not finishing on a, on a tangent. Directly to your question, it is uh, a political um, justification, but it has to meet the Mankari standard. Special treatment tied rationally to the fulfillment of Congress's unique obligations to the Indians. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is that a bare desire to help individual Indians doesn't satisfy it. That's what Mankari suggests, right? Mankari says you can't just give a preference to any Indian uh, even a, federally, a member of a federally recognized tribe throughout the government. A bare desire to, to help um, is not enough. It, you know, we could go, I don't want to parse agency by agency. I think DOJ, which does all the litigation for the government and Indian tribes, probably is a situation where you could justify a preference. But the main point, Your Honor, is that Mankari has some bite, right? Mankari says you can't just decide you're going to help any individual Indians and then, you know, close the book. Um, so you disagree with Mr. Needler, who did say that in those variety of cases that they would present a harder, a harder case. I'm not saying I don't disagree that it's a harder case. I'm just saying I view them as political. You'd win it just because, no. despite the fact. Well, that I'd have to hear the particular hypos, Your Honor. But let me. I want to be clear about the m method of analysis, and then I'm happy to answer whatever hypos Your Honor wants. The the my method of analysis is if the federal government imposes it on federally recognized tribes, it's political. It then has to meet the test that was set forth in Mankari. It had, the re justification has to be tied rationally to the fulfillment of Congress's unique obligations to the Indians. Some of those, uh, you know, Mankari said BIA, okay, federal government wide, 
not okay. And, you know, then I need to see what Congress said. What makes this case so easy, right, is Congress studied this for four years, right? Congress told you exactly why, not in legislative history, but in legislative findings that it said, this is what we're worried about, right? We, this, is, this is going to the — this is not a peripheral — um, a, a mere desire to benefit individual Indians. This is going to the core of tribal self-government. But what about the, uh, the hypothetical about uh, providing COVID vaccines? And suppose Congress says uh, Indians, uh, the Indian population on the whole, has more people with complicate with uh, with factors that make them more vulnerable to uh, serious consequences from getting. COVID, and therefore they should get preference over others in, uh, the dis- in the distribution of vaccines. So, Your Honor, the way you've posed the hypo, I would consider that a racial classification, not a political one. If Congress were to say just Indians, undefined, that might well be a racial classification might well be. If Congress were to say we're giving it to members of federally recognized Indian tribes first because <clears throat> we find on reservations where the individuals are concentrated, that there's a particular problem because they don't have access to health care and hospitals in the same way, then I think that would be defensible. That would All be right. a political well, let me classification. Modify it. it applies to members of federally recognized tribes, but it not it's not limited to what happens on the reservation. So I think it's that everywhere. I think that would be harder. And it goes back to the bare, de- bare desire. That would be a political classification. But the bare desire to help members of tribes is not uh, we think is not — forget what we think — is not what the court has said um, is sufficient under Mankari. And so, uh, you know, I think that, that that's, how I, that's how I think about it. You know, look, uh, any of the hypos could have hard questions. I've tried to give the court a sense of what I think this court's, court's cases demand and, therefore, how we think about it. Um, you, I, I'd like you to finish. No, that. I'm done. <laughs> You say helping Indians is not enough, but what's the helping Indians plus what? So I think some link, Your Honor, to uh, tribal self-government is sort of at the core, and that's why I think ICWA is really so easy, because uh, what, what makes Congress made the findings, and, and a number of the justices touched on it this morning, Congress made the findings that the wholesale unwarranted removal of 25 to 35 percent of Indian children was devastating tribes and tribal self-government. There is nothing more core. Uh, this is a place where I disagree quite strongly with uh, my friends on the other side. Like, there is nothing more central to self-government than deciding who, uh, so you know, who's a member. And you don't how take does, my word how, for it. That's how what does health care, the education, the housing allotments, how do they fit in? Uh, I, I think those are it, the other Title 25. Yeah, I think that those are that shows, Your Honor, a, a number of things. First of all, it shows that Congress has routinely there's not you know there's this sense I think that Mankari sprung up from you know from the from the earth you know 40 years ago, uh, but, but what what. Congress has been legislating to help Indians since the beginning, right? It is in the Constitution, and it is there not just — I'm not using that as sort of a, aha, it's in the Constitution. It's in the Constitution because tribes are — Indians are treated in the Constitution like political entities, 
right? Cong they're treated parallel in the, in, the, in, the, in the Commerce Clause with foreign nations and with states. Their, Congress has the power to treat, to conduct treaties with Indians, right? They are, they are political from the beginning. And like, I mean, I don't want to list all of the Indian-specific statutes, right? But the Dawes Act, the Indian Civil Rights Act, the uh, Indian or Reorganization Act, you know, ICWA, IGRA. I mean, Congress has routinely uh, singled out members of federally recognized tribes for legislation. Mr. Gershengorn, I want to go back to something you said, because you said, it, you know, it's obvious that when you remove 30 percent of children from a political community, you harm that political community. I think um, some of the strong feelings about this case come from a sense of, yes, but what about the children? I mean, you do harm the political community, but are you saying that the political community is more important than the welfare of the children. And, 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 and so that's the thing that I think uh, people sure. going, whoa. Yeah. I mean, so... Um, I'm glad you asked that, Your Honor. I, mean, I think it's critical that what Congress found is not just that ICWA was, was important for preserving the tribal community. Congress found that ICWA was in the best interests of the children. Right? I, I don't think I could emphasize it more than, than that. What Congress found was that it was, it was in the interest of the children, and the reason that Congress found that is because, and the reason ICWA has become the gold standard, is because Congress made the judgment and recognized that separating children from their families and communities too soon caused harm. I think it's important to recognize that the average age of people in ICWA is over six years old, as discussed in the Casey brief. These are children who have formed school school bonds. They are children who are playing on sports teams. They are children who have interacted, have a group of friends. They've been made connections on the community. And what ICWA realizes is that these children were being taken from their communities too soon. Why? Well, sometimes there was abuse at home, right? But what ICWA says is a lot of times that is remediatable, which is why we have the active efforts provision, right? It's substance abuse, right? It's, it's the ability, if you can get the child out of the home, get the care to the parents, then the child will actually thrive when the child is returned to the home and community. What, so what, I, what about the third preference, which is a preference for members of another tribe? How does that have to do with keeping the uh, uh, Indian child uh, on the reservation? So, Your Honor, as I've suggested... The, the, with the, the familiar environment, as you suggested. Sure. The, and the, 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 the quickest answer to that, Your Honor, is that, that in my experience, or I should say, my experience talking with people who actually experience this, um, which is as close as I've gotten, is that the way this comes up most often actually is tribes, is individual Indians living on the, on the reservation of another. And so they are building exactly that community. This is not some random tribe plucked from the ether that all of a sudden gets a well, preference no in the real world. Absolutely, Your Honor. And I am not here to say, in fact, I think I've conceded that it would be extraordinarily difficult as applied challenge in the kinds of, uh, again, I'm using as a shorthand, the Maine to Arizona hypo. But I don't think this is at all difficult on a facial challenge in the real world where this plays out. Because what's happening in the world, and remember, we're, we're talking about not a single example of this appears in any of the briefing that I have seen. Okay? And so what's happening in the real world is that individuals are, are individual members are living on the reservations of another and, and then the preference is going to that tribe. Justice Thomas? Justice Alito? Justice Sotomayor? You, um, in your opening statement, you said that this is a bad case to deal with this question because the individual plaintiffs don't have standing. Why not? 
Your Honor, thank you. So they don't have standing for a number of reasons. First, redressability, right? This is a law review article. It does not bind a single state court judge that actually adjudicates a, um, a, a state court adoption proceeding. Second, there is no injury in fact. There is not a single individual plaintiff who has had an adoption that existed from the time of the amended complaint through the Fifth Circuit judgment. And so there is no injury in fact. And third, there has been some suggestion that the APA, the challenge to the APA uh, regs under the APA might save the equal protection challenge. That is incorrect. The injury to the plaintiffs is coming from the preferences in the statute. There is nothing about the challenge to to the regs that eliminates the preferences in the statute or the definition of Indian child. And so there is no standing on the equal protection side. Does it, for does it make a difference that our ruling would bind state officials? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Uh, the, the court has been crystal clear that standing, needs, that standing needs to be established in the lower court. The, every case would have standing. There would be no advisory opinions because, of course, what this court says binds everybody. And so the fact that, that uh, it's made it this far through an erroneous standing ruling does not cure the, the standing problem that existed at the start. And then I will say, although Your Honor asked me about individuals, um, Texas has no equal protection rights here. Texas goes on and on. We heard all the numbers this morning about their injury. That's nice, but injury does not create an equal protection right. And basically what, what Texas's view would do is completely eviscerate third-party standing. Georgia v. McCollum could have been a very short opinion. It could have just said, Texas is participating in an unconstitutional scheme. Thank you very much. But it didn't do that. It looked to see whether there were third-party rights that Georgia could assert that for some reason the third party was unlikely to assert. And, but regardless of whether teenage drinkers or excluded jurors have a disincentive to, um, to bring court cases, that has no application to the situation here where the individual plaintiffs are in court litigating. So there is no justification for Texas to assert rights, and obviously uh, the parents' patriae is not available against the federal government. So there is no standing, in addition to the fact that the preferences that have most troubled, for example, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, they were never applied to any, like, it's like standing on standing on standing problems. It's like, a, it's like inverse of turtles all the way down. It's like the absence of turtles anywhere. Um, I need a better metaphor. Um, but, but. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? Um, you haven't had a chance to address the commandeering arguments, in particular with respect to the active efforts provision. So the active efforts provision, uh, I, I think I would say uh, two things on that. First of all, the main point from our perspective is that, and this is at footnote 44 of footnote 54 on page 85 of our brief, is that it applies even, even-handedly to, this does not single out Texas, or does not single out states for particular treatment. It applies just as much in private placements, and the, that's set forth in the brief. I also think that it is, it is right to view this as a situation in which a private right is created. You have the, the, the individual Indian child, the, the tribe has a right to... Um, you know, to to have the placement done only after active efforts are, you know, active efforts are done. And so I, I think that um, with respect to the active efforts provisions under this court's, court's case law, a provision that applies even-handedly to private parties and to states um, and creates private rights is is not commandeering, not impermissible uh, commandeering. I think we heard from Texas that uh, it disproportionately affects them because most of these are initiated by state entities right. and also that they'd have to do some work even in the event of a private initiated suit. 
Yeah, I think, Your Honor, that way madness lies. If this Court is going to evaluate even-handed restrictions to see whether, on balance, they affect more states than private parties, we've really extended the, you know, the anti-commandeering doctrine, and I think that this Court's caseload um, quite substantially, because, uh, you know, that what the, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, not to mention cases like Reno v. Condon. I mean, once you start to say, yes, it regulates even-handedly, yes, in the real world, there are private and state parties at issue, but we're going to look to it uh, and say it more often affects, you know, states. Uh, and, and I think Reno v. Condon is sort of against that. I mean, I think that was one where the state may have been um, more affected. But in any event, um, I, I don't think that that's a sensible line that this court could ever draw to look at statute by statute in the real world. Does this affect states more than private citizens? Is there any inhibition to a private party raising an as-applied equal protection challenge to the third preference in state court litigation? Absolutely not. And it hasn't happened in 40 years that you're aware of? I'll just say it has not been brought to our attention either as we've done our research or the other side. As Your Honor knows, record-keeping in family law cases is tricky, but I'm not aware of, uh, I'm not aware of uh, an equal protection clause challenge to the third pr- placement. And indeed, I just want to reemphasize, which I've said before, it has not been applied to any of the plaintiffs here. And finally, I... <clears throat> I understand this court sometimes speaks when Congress hasn't in Indian affairs, but but here we have a statute by Congress. And are you aware of any time this court in 200 years has struck down as facially invalid an exercise of Congress's plenary powers over Indian affairs? Uh, I am not. Justice Kavanaugh? Two questions. First, you mentioned that the average age is six and a half. Uh, I assume that means there are hundreds or thousands of children who are relative newborns, one, two, three, over the years who are affected by this statute. There's no age cutoff in the statute, or are you uh, correct? There is no age cutoff and in the statute. are you aware that it's been applied differently this, with newborns or So, Your Honor, I, that's a trickier question because, I, I mean, I, that's one that I don't think anybody has the empirical research on. I think as a practical matter, it would surprise me if it weren't, that the statute, the, the good cause exception itself provides a different application. It says that the wishes of a, of a child who is old enough to express them um, are taken into account. The cultural bonds that an older child would have uh, almost certainly would be taken into account. If the child comes in and says, you know, I, I have a friend group, I have a sports team, I have after-school activities. So you're I, not a, that, those are good points, but you're not aware that that's reflected in any we're on a facial or, challenge, yeah, Your Honor, yeah. so I'm not aware of anything yeah. in the record one way or the other on right. that. That's the problem, I think, not the solution. No, that, uh, fair point. Uh, secondly, on the land question, I just want to get make sure the sentence from Moncari that you can uh, respond to it. Quote, literally every piece of legislation dealing with Indian tribes and reservations, and certainly all legislation dealing with the BIA, single out for special treatment a constituency of tribal Indians living on or near reservations, end quote. Is that accurate then? Is it still accurate now? I think it was. I think the scope of history of Indian law suggests that it is not accurate and was never accurate. The Congress has legislated for tribal and tribal members off the land and has registered legislated for non-Indians under the Indian powers um, from the beginning. But as I said, like, to me, the bigger problem is, is, is two, two points, Your Honor. One is I really think it's important that Mankari isn't the root of the Congress's special treatment of Indians. That dates back to the text of the Constitution and from the very first Trade and Intercourse Acts um, that, that 
that um, that that started. And then for the reasons I've said, and I won't repeat, I think land is like uh, is just a nonsensical um, a nonsensical way to crosscut, given what the Constitution was trying to do vis-a-vis the Articles of Confederation, given the history of the treatment, and given what your, this court. Your has point, said over sorry, because time's short. Your, your point is the sentence is not accurate. I mean, the tip-off should have been the word literally, I suppose, but it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Justice Barrett. Active efforts. Um, I'm just trying to get a picture for how this works. You're saying it applies to private parties and the state. And this is just because I'm having a difficult time imagining how this actually happens on the ground. You have to show that efforts have been made to provide remedial services and rehabilitation programs designed to prevent the breakup of the Indian family. Who, I mean, Texas says, well, that's those are state-run programs that would be those efforts, like the rehabilitation. How does that work in the context so, Your Honor, of a I private have to party? confess, I don't know, and I, I apologize for that. I, I don't know how that works in the real world in private placements. It doesn't seem to me that it inevitably has to go through the state services, but the, the candid answer to your question is I just don't know. Okay, and then one other quick question. Would your client have any objection? I, I asked General Stone, okay, well, one, one argument that the government makes is this isn't commandeering because you can walk away. You know, you can decide not to do this. Would your client have any objection then if the state of Texas, General Stone said, our substantive law requires us to undertake efforts to place children in foster care in these circumstances and it would be unmanageable for us to discern when a child is Indian or a member of a tribe or not? Let's imagine Texas says, okay, we want to walk away. We don't want to engage in these active efforts, so we're just going to get out of the business. And if we can discern that a child is a member of a tribe, our agencies will not be involved in placing the children in foster care. So, Your Honor, okay. I, I mean, I think that would be a disaster on the ground. But, but, could, could, well, but would it be legal for Texas to do that? Would there be an equal protection challenge that someone could bring against Texas for treating Indian children differently when it comes to foster placement? Um, I mean, you're saying uh, that there would be political consequences or practical consequences to Texas walking away from foster care, and I agree. And and General Stone made that point. And I think it would be hard for me to argue your – I'm sorry to cut you off. Finish your question. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say, but what I'm asking is if we're thinking about whether Texas has a legal choice – there might yeah. be practical considerations. I guess I'm I, trying to figure out, is this really voluntary? So I think I would have to say, Your Honor, given that there were no, for the first 150-some-odd years of our country, there was no child care system at all, that it would be hard for me to say that Const- Texas is constitutionally required to have one. Um, but but that's, if they have that's one, a- could they cut Indian children out of it, is my question. Because they don't have to uh, no, obey think, ICWA with respect to our I think if phone. Texas – I think that would raise serious equal protection problems. If so they, they don't have a choice then? Well, they have complying. a choice whether to participate in the proceedings at all. They may or may they, – what they may not be able to do is say, I'm doing it only for non-Indian children. Participate in proceedings, in, in, you mean in, in foster care? Correct. In a foster care system? Correct. I don't think there's any constitutional requirement they have a foster care system. But if they have a foster care system, they couldn't say because of what ICWA requires us to undertake in these active efforts and the, you know, they complain about the record keeping. We just want none of that, so we're going to walk away from that. We're not going to let the federal government um, impose those obligations on us. So. I think that's right, but I have to say of all the answers I've given today, that's the one I'm least confident. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Justice Jackson? Yes. So is the reason that you, in response to Justice Barrett, the first part of her question said that you don't really know the details of how ICWA would play out in the ways that she indicated is because we're here on a facial challenge and not an as-applied challenge. You focused on that a couple times. I think it's most honest to say, yes, compounded by my own ignorance. Okay. (laughs) Well, can you just help me to understand the implications of the facial versus as-applied nature of the challenge that's being being brought here? I think it comes in, in two important ways. First of all, I think it completely changes the standard of review that this court um, that this court uses. What the court has said in facial challenges is statutes, congressional statutes survive if they have a plainly legitimate scope. And so I think that like it completely changes the way we talk about, for example, the, the, third, um, the third preference. Um, and, you know, then I think on the flip side, uh, in addition to sort of the change in legal standard, it changes how we talk about it. What we are talking about here is a series of hypotheticals. Honestly, we don't even have the facts of the individual cases before us. Remember, these are child care proceedings. I mean, there's a debate about um, about child P, and then there's an amicus brief from the grandmother. They're, they're presenting starkly different views of what happened. The reason we're doing that is because we're here on facial challenge, right? How this plays out in the real world, what the limits are. This is a very, very difficult area of the law, as the last two or three hours have shown. Um, and, and to decide it on the basis of hypotheticals that never arise in the real world, and yet take away a statute that has made such a meaningful difference for so many children, um, it, it seems to me just like not the way this court should be deciding questions. Uh, go back to what I said at the start. A, a, a deciding a facial challenge to a statute in a situation where there is no standing seems to me like a very poor way to resolve major challenges to critical legislation. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Case is submitted. No? I'm sorry, Mr. McGill. <laughs> it is late. Thank you very much, Mr. Chief Justice. I will uh, take the hint. Um, I, I, I want to start uh, with how this works in practice. Um, I assure you it is not at all hypothetical. Um, it starts with the Brackeens and families like them being on a list of willing foster care providers. Joint Appendix 108 says, we are willing to be foster parents for other children in the future. When a child comes into the foster care system, the preferences are applied. That's 1915B. The final rule is applied. The good cause requirement to the final rule is applied, and it is applied each and every time an Indian child comes into the system. This is not like Haley's Comet. It comes around a lot. In Texas alone, in, uh, in footnote four of the district court opinion, 39 children, uh, Indian children, in, in the state foster care system. Joint Appendix 108, Texas alleges this happens several times a year. How does the good cause get... Uh, requirement get applied on the ground, I would ask the Court to please look at the the Court of Appeals decision in YRJ's case called Interest of YRJ. It says that in seeking to establish good cause for not following the placement preferences, the the party must bring forth by clear and convincing evidence of, of good cause. That good cause must be based on at least one of several considerations. My friend on the other side says this is a disarray in the state courts. I would respectfully suggest it is regulatory design. Um, 
The government, in any event, has conceded that this is intended to override the normal application of the best interest tests. We heard a little bit about the third preference. The government suggests that it applies to maybe only related tribes. We know why it applies. It's in this court's decision in Hollyfield. There is a federal policy to send Indian children to the Indian community, not their community, as the government seeks to alter it in the brief, the Indian community writ large. We heard that the proprietary interest uh, is maybe just a duty of protection. I would submit YRJ was a citizen of Texas before she was given her her certificate of Indian blood. Texas has at least as much proprietary interest as the Navajo Nation does here. Um, The third preference and the biological component of the Indian child definition is the smoking gun textual evidence here that Congress was acting with a racial purpose. And it's backstopped by the House report, which talks about identifying a children who have common blood. It says that blood relationship is the very touchstone of the ability to remain, or to enjoy the benefits of a tribe. Um, the government here is making, in fact, the same argument it made in Rice on the equal protection point. You can see that from Justice Ginsburg's one-paragraph dissent. But there's one notable exception. In Rice, at oral argument, the government was prepared to, to concede that these preferences could not be applied in the outer world. It, and it recognized that this distinction was rooted in Mankari itself. So that's why... Rice concludes that the administration of state laws by a state agency is that outer world. It's the new and larger dimension to which Mankari could not possibly be applied. That, the government here is even broader than it made in Rice, and it can't be squared with Rice's holding that a tribal classification can be a proxy for race. The classification was you know, p- political in Mankari because it directly advanced tribes' ability to govern themselves. The justice and treasury hypotheticals, Justice Kavanaugh, present more difficult questions, it was conceded, because the tie to self-governance in those cases is, is much more attenuated. Rice held that the Hawaii statute's advancement of indigenous self-government was insufficient to make that classification political because it operated in the sphere of administration of state laws by a state agency. ICWA has no connection to tribal government at all. Whether YRJ is adopted by the Brackeens will not affect one iota, the Navajo Nation's ability to pass its own laws or to govern themselves. It doesn't apply on Indian lands at all. It doesn't even affect tribal existence. She is already a member of the Navajo Nation and will remain so. YRJ is subjected to a different legal standard here based on a status that she has zero ability to control. That differing legal standard, the placement preferences, is at best a set of stereotypes about what is best for the child that has Indian ancestry. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.